Three, two, one. Ash, do that switcheroo. Let's know what happened there. <laughs> hey, everyone. Welcome to Atwood Unleashed 97. It is a four and a half hour show tonight, going from 5.45 to 10.10. Seven guests across the show, which is co-hosted by Stephen Knight. Thank you, everyone, who has subscribed to Stephen's channel and checked out his Substack. Links are in the description box. So if you do get a chance to support us on Patreon, that link is also in the description box. We're going to have our usual chewing the cud of the certain news stories this week. Prince Harry, Philip Schofield, Donald Trump. After we introduced the guests of a minute, minutes we got left. Well, first guest who we went viral a few years ago, I think it was John Potash. He did an expose on Kurt Cobain versus the CIA and Courtney Love, which was fascinating. And he also talks about Hendrix, John Lennon, the Black Panthers. He has been featured on Coast to Coast and American History TV. He's a filmmaker, author, and psychotherapist. Always enjoy talking to John. Then Stephen takes over at 7. Yeah, this is a good one. From 7 to 7.30, uh, making her first appearance on Outward Unleash is Kinsey Schofield. Uh, she's an L.A.-based royal commentator and host of the To Die For Daily podcast. Die spelled D-I there. Uh, Kinsey began reporting on the royals in 2017. Uh, to die for daily.com is a pop culture take on the British royal family and a celebration of the life of Princess Diana. Uh, Kinsey recently published an article on The Express where she discussed how she was wrong about Prince Harry and that his memoir brings forth a victimhood narrative. So looking forward to getting into that. Um, and from 7.30 to 8, I'll be speaking to podcast host and veteran TV correspondent Connor Powell. Uh, he has been for over a decade, sorry, he has over a decade's worth of experience covering war and conflicts around the world. However, tonight's discussion will revolve around the infamous Koh Tao Island in Thailand, which for the last decade has seen dozens of tourists mysteriously die. Uh, Connor will be unpacking what's happening on the island and discussing the new evidence his documentary has unearthed. And I believe it's the right. old switcheroo over to Patreon. <laughs> All right. So at Patreon, we have got from 8.10 to 8.40. Actually, Stephen's going to have that one. It's me again. Uh, yeah, I'll be speaking to a skeptic uh, and Invisible Night School co-host, uh, Campbell Moriera. Uh, they'll start the Patreon discussion this evening. Uh, Campbell is the creator of UAPstudy.com, which is a website that focuses on a skeptic's academic approach to the modern UFO subject. Right up my alley, that. Looking forward to that one. And then hot on the heels on that, uh, from that, from 8.40, uh, historian, teacher, and writer Stuart Wexler will join us next. Uh, you may remember he had some technical issues last week, so really looking forward to getting him on this week. Uh, Stuart is the author of books such as Killing King, Racial Terrorist, James Earl Ray, and The Plot to Assassinate Martin Luther King Jr., uh, which will be the main focus of our discussion. From 9.10, we've got writer Carl Abrahamson. And he's going to be discussing some of his most popular books. He is a fiction writer as well as an expert on esoteric history and occulture. That's a new word for me. 
So through his interest in occultism, he met the Church of Satan's Anton LaVey in 89, which sparked an infernally empowering friendship. In the book, Abramson explores what LaVey was really about, where he came from, and how he shaped the esoteric landscape of the 1960s. Wow. 940, we've got Donald Cohen, founder and executive director of In the Public Interest. He's a founding board member of Power Switch Action and author of The Privatization of Everything. And tonight, we are going to be discussing the prison industrial complex, how America's profited from private prisons and hospitals over the years. Did you guys know that the prison industrial complex was an offshoot of the military industrial complex? If you trace it way back. All right, so before we go into some of these news stories now, because we've got 10 minutes, I'm just going to look at give you guys your survey results of the week. The last survey we put up on the channel community wall was 23 hours ago. What content would you like to see more of on this channel? Six and a half thousand votes. And you voted 59% on hard-hitting true life stories. 30% on conspiracies, aliens, and esoteric. 5% want royal and Markle coverage. And 6% want news and politics. The weird thing is, though, that the Markle coverage is getting like half the channel views. The algorithm is really promoting it, which is a shame because if you guys want more of the other stuff, the algorithm is not promoting it as much as Markle, which we're finding frustrating. We don't want to just swamp the whole channel with Markle and Royal family coverage. Have you been looking at the Royals at all on your Substack, Stephen? Absolutely not. No, um, <laughs> I can't think of anything less interesting. It's funny that, like, it appears that a lot of your viewers really love the Markle stuff, but the Markle viewers don't really like polls. I think that's probably your issue. <laughs> <laughs> that's where the data is going askew. Good observation. Now, we had Dan on the channel talking about Andrew Tate. He's not a fan of Tate, I'm neutral. And we did a poll. We wanted to find out how many of our viewers support Tate. And the poll was, are you glad that Andrew Tate was moved to house arrest? 6,000 votes in two days. 68% of our viewers are glad that Andrew was moved to house arrest. 25% no, 7% over. And we have just reached out to Ryan Dawson, who does believe in Andrew Tate's matrix theory. And we will be exploring that, hopefully, with Ryan Dawson soon. So... Again, just because we have Dan on does not mean we are against Tate, as some people have. Some people think that the channel, whoever we have on, we are endorsing that viewpoint. No, we like to have a variety of viewpoints on this channel. That's how we learn and enhance our critical thinking skills. We had a few people nice. on the channel that Stephen's not agreed with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Next. Uh... You've got, to, you've got to be open to discussion with all sorts of people. Your discussion's good, regardless. Definitely. All right. Next poll was five days ago. Who would you rather see serve life in UK prison? Charles Bronson or Gary Glitter? 80% Gary Glitter, 14% Bronson, 6% over. I agree. And um, anyone who's put any comments or voted on these polls, we do appreciate your feedback. You are helping us the other channel so we've got a story that's broke this week i'll bring it up we can't use certain words we'll just call the p word adults attracted to kids 
because of the algorithm. And if you want to get the gruesome details, go over to Matthew Steeples, The Steeple Times. Matthew is a huge friend of the channel. I'm going to put the link into The Steeple Times in the comments right now. Please go over there and check out his work. And you can follow him on Twitter and support him on Twitter. He has done so much for the channel. He's been on nearly every week doing live streams recently. And um, well, it's titled Moron of the Moment 2023 Pugnacious Pillock Philip Scofe. Our breakfast TV presenter is saying this because Scofe's brother was found guilty as being an adult attracted to kids, which is quite horrendous. I'll see if I can read a little bit more of this without giving too much away. And, um, <laughs> it's quite, yeah, I don't want to get a defamation lawsuit. Um, let's see. So the conviction of Timothy Schofield for beep offenses came this week, uh, deserved outrage against the ITV one this morning host and comments that included, I do hope he faces the consequences of failing to speak out. More kids could have been affected because of his silence. I mean, there are allegations that the brother who's on Breakfast TV tried to put a gag order on this stuff. And yeah, I'm probably going to leave that at that. <laughs> yeah, just, uh, the, the, big, the big L of libel was just wandering into shot there. We have to be very careful, <laughs> don't we? Yeah. What have you done on your Substack this week, Stephen? I, once again, am all consumed by arguments pertaining to the gender wars i don't know if you're familiar with a, a, a chap called billboard chris based in canada he turned up to a trans rights demonstration wearing a billboard with the words children cannot consent to puberty blockers written on it he was accosted by two trans identified males who repeatedly shouted f off in his face got more and more aggressive and it devolved, he got grabbed by the throat, it devolved in a fight, he got injured, and the police pretty much just observed observed the whole thing, the Canadian police, and then actually blamed Chris for his own assault afterwards because apparently he was inciting uh, violence just by having that opinion. So thought it was worth documenting on my Substack if anyone wants to read about that. This video was on there as well of the incident. So what these wars are just ongoing online, are they, and out on the streets as well, and, and Speaker's Corner, that kind of thing? Yeah. I think it's worse than that as well because it's it, it pertains to legislation, law, sports, academia, the media, in the employment, place of employment. Now you have to be very careful what you can and can't say or what, what views you can hold on biological reality or certainly what you can say out loud. So I think more and more people are noticing this is being more and more of an imposition on their daily life and are, are pushing back. So we're seeing a lot of women's groups turn up and uh, protest in response to it. Yeah, I recently visited at her home, Sarah Jane Baker, who was the longest serving trans prisoner in the UK, I think 30 plus years. She cut her parts off while she was inside her man parts off. And I asked her about this controversy over trans, um, you know, people who are born men become women and then go into women's prisons. And she said the middle ground would be to have like a building to put, the trans prisoners in not put see, them in with the women 
you, you you raise an incredibly good point here, which really gets overlooked, and that is the majority. The, the issue is this: this battle of ideas is not really with transgender people; it's with trans activists who are majoritively not trans, who claim to speak on behalf of these people and try and impose certain ideologies. Uh, my interactions with trans women and tra trans men have been perfectly reasonable on, on many of these topics. So, yeah, it's the activists that seems to be causing a problem on on both sides. All right, and we've just got a few minutes to squeeze in our 5% vote, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Um, Prince Harry was in court. Oh, oh, you guys are saved. Our guest is here. So it looks like we're going to bring in John Potash at any moment. Just read this comment from Imogen, shall we, in the live chat. Stephen Knight, I think you would find Enoch Burke's story interesting. It's a storyline in Ireland right now. It's right up your street. Anything to say on that, Imogen? Thank you, Imogen. I will check it out. I'm not I'm not familiar with the name, but it sounds like the kind of thing I'd read about and go, ah, yeah, I've heard about that, but I will look it up. So thank you. All right. Cheers. We will see you forthwith, my friend. See you soon. Have a good one. Bye. All right. If you'd like to take a deep dive into CIA conspiracies, many of which have been proven to be true, or the weight of evidence has suggested they are true over the years as more evidence has come to light, we have got one of our guests, one of our most viral guests on the subject. I remember the stuff he did with Kurt Cobain. Uh, people were going nuts over it on the channel. He also talked about John Lennon. John is a filmmaker, author, psychotherapist. He's been featured on Coast to Coast and American History TV. And his book, which was published in 2015, is called Drugs as Weapons Against Us. The CIA's murderous targeting of SDS, Panthers, Hendrix, Lennon, Cobain, and Tupac. All right, let's bring John in, shall we? Hey, John, how's it going, my friend? Good, Sean. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, always great to see you and hear what you've got to say. Uh, how is the book doing? It's doing well. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I keep writing articles uh, related to MKUltra because sadly there is so, so many, you know, MKUltra projects still going on today, it appears. Um, a recent article I wrote was about um, this... Uh, Father Maskell and this uh, documentary called The Keepers about this priest who was uh, abusing, you know, tons of young women, teen women in, in a Catholic high school and um, turns out to have many connections to MKUltra, the CIA's MKUltra uh, program. And um, of course, Drugs as Weapons Against Us, my book and film, are both about MKUltra, about the use of drugs for unconventional warfare. And so, because um, this guy was apparently using, you know, drugs, including LSD, hypnosis, and uh, raping and uh, selling these teen girls to politicians and police and other priests around the city, and and actually further around the East Coast. So was, yeah, and this documentary about it called The Keepers was uh, awarded was nominated for an Academy Award for documentary in our country. So yeah, it's, it's big news. Congratulations. We have had some people on commenting on that over the years, but John, mm -hmm. a lot of our viewers perhaps are not familiar with MK ultra. Could you just sure. let them know how it started? 
Yeah, so MKUltra was started in 1953. It was a consolidation, uh, an umbrella project of several others programs that were already going on, such as uh, Artichoke and Bluebird. These were CIA projects that were uh, figure, trying to figure out ways to use drugs to control people, and uh, you know, and other projects for the for the control of people to you know use them as assets to manipulate them in different ways to use them for blackmail um and you know use in to basically also develop a dissociative identity disorder because of the drugs coupled with uh serious sexual abuse of, of kids anywhere from age three to you know 18 uh particularly three to eight years old though can cause um dissociative disorder or dissociative identity disorder and people may not know those terms but it used to be dissociative identity disorder it used to be called multiple personality disorder and so these these you know uh women or men who who develop this disorder can then be used as assets with one of their personalities doing things that another of their personalities don't doesn't even remember them doing where they can be you know uh, manipulated in dissociative states to do things that they don't remember doing and so uh, that's just some of uh, one part of MKUltra. But I, in my book, I showed how MKUltra started in 1953. And then in 1961, President John F. Kennedy, who we, you know, I hope to talk about today too with you, uh, basically closed, closed down MKUltra and really tried to get, you know, disintegrate the whole CIA, at, you know, he had said at some point. But he closed down MKUltra. They ran it behind his back. But um, he tried to close it down a second time before he was assassinated. And they just changed its name to MK Search and kept it going at least until the mid-1970s when the uh, Senate Church Committee, U.S. Senate Church Committee, um, investigated it and um, you know, tried to expose much of it, which they did in, in a number of reports, and uh, which were somewhat echoed in some mainstream media, but not a lot. You know, most mainstream media didn't touch this issue for fear of the CIA's, you know, um, you know, in their work with them and their control of the media that, uh, you know, things would happen to them as individual journalists and happen to their career. But, um, you know, I show the evidence that MKUltra, like other U.S. intelligence programs, such as the FBI's counterintelligence program, um, kept going at least until, you know, one with FBI whistleblower said like, it went at least until the uh, 1990s. And I, I show evidence that they kept they keep going until today. So, John, I'm just wondering if these people who go through MK Ultra are terminated when their usefulness has expired, or are there any perhaps survivors of it that we could speak to, or maybe you've reached out to? Yeah, well, um, look, I did a personal interview with um, a one of the survivors of this Father Maskell situation, um, and this woman said that you know they used hypnosis and and forced lsd on her first uh her this priest in her school um kept you know giving her drinks dosed with lsd and then uh manipulated a friend of hers a really big friend of hers to to force lsd on her in different ways and um and she says that she was always worried as well as a friend of hers who also went through this kind of uh abuse by maskell and others that um they had they were programmed to react and do something to certain you know uh, signals and certain you know numbers that they might hear and so um she you know she seemed to be a, a victim who got out of it through extensive therapy sorry about that i'm gonna turn this off 
um, through extensive therapy. And, um, yeah, that's what it takes, uh, to get out of it. But, um, so she, and that's what I do. I do psychotherapy for a living and I have helped, um, a number of trauma victims with uh, something called EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. But, um, you know, she's just one of God knows how many that are, are still alive today. Um, though she's, you know, gotten in recovery, but people like Courtney Love, uh, is most likely a victim of this kind of MK Ultra, and you know the evidence is that she's part of it all, and just doesn't know she's still part of it all, and is still wrecking havoc. As so, for example, in the uh, Jeff Epstein sex trafficking cases, she was in his black book. She was one of the only women in, that was circled as a material witness to a lot of things that happened. And so I can talk to you more about that and the new evidence regarding Kurt Cobain's case, you know, in that situation. Yeah, we'll get to that. Um, one of the viewers is asking if you've heard of Kathy O'Brien. I'm assuming she's perhaps an MK Ultra survivor. Yeah, she is a survivor. And um, I've seen her videos and, uh, you know, heard her talk about it. And, and she seems very credible. And she talks about some of the things that happened to her and some of the ways the traumas like heightened her senses, they increased her vision, they increased her memory. And basically what happens is when we're traumatized, it, it puts us into this vigilant, you know, intense, uh, you know, kind of awareness you know, like in fear that we're going to be traumatized again. And so it causes us to use, you know, to expand the use of our brain to use more of it. And that's why people can be in hyper alert situations, have a, a better memory, have improved eyesight to be hyper aware, you know, wide open eyes, hyper aware of what's going on to try to, um, you know, be vigilant about something happening again. And I think, you know, she is a very interesting case in that regard and talking about it. And it's great that she, she has been speaking out. I don't know her story in ex extensive detail because I, I investigated other stories, but I think she is a very credible witness on it all. We've been asked whether Britney Spears has gone through something like this. Yeah. I, again, I, I, for her, I didn't, you know, look at her case intensively, but I do believe that she is a case of, um, of, you know, ritual abuse from early on, from early childhood and the way, the way she was, um, assaulted was you know what i believe she was assaulted was as part of the uh disney's traveling you know uh actors and musicians and you know performers disney has a traveling national network of, of young performers and i counseled a, a woman who was part of that those national performers and who had who clearly had some kind of dissociative um disorder going on she was a had an addiction going on she um, was, you know, director of a regional theater and um, had extensive problems. And I can't, of course, talk, you know, about very personal details about her because I can't you know, reveal things about clients. But she just was one example of, uh, I, you know, she of child abuse through Disney's National Performing uh, Network. And there's just, you know, I've heard of a number of other uh, performers that were abused by their coaches, their, their, you know, Disney coaches in those national performing networks. And they have dissociative disorder, they have addiction issues. And, um, and, you know, from what I've seen about Britney Spears, she shows the, you know, kind of the behaviors of that, 
for sure. Right. I'm going to have to view as a quick question then. Do you want us to start with Kurt Cobain? Put one in the chat. If you want us to start with JFK, put two in the chat. And all of John's links are in the description box below this video. So please support his work. How many books have you written now? So, Sean, yeah, I wrote two books, um, The FBI War on Tupac Shakur and Black Leaders, which was kind of um, uh, bought out by or just really just um, taken by a new publisher and transformed into the, just the FBI war on Tupac Shakur, a colon state repression of black leaders. Um, and uh, then I wrote the second book I wrote was Drugs as Weapons Against Us, the CIA you know, war on musicians and activists, of course, has a longer title, which you, you mentioned, which I appreciate. But then I turned those two books into films. And then, of course, came uh, wrote another film and produced another film that shot you janks the pandemics. But um, so I think that the, um, you know, the key things I've been focusing on are U.S. intelligence and uh, particularly with, around musicians and other activists and the way that affects the population. It's almost unanimous for Kurt Cobain. So let's just because a lot of people haven't seen you before on the channel, John. Let's go over the basics first. Sure, sure. So uh, Cobain won. That was very democratic of you, Sean. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> well, regarding Co Kurt Cobain, he um, he was a kind of a activist, anti-war and civil rights activist inside. You, you know, he was just a he had activist at heart. I believe he he stated a lot of uh, you know pro kind of activist causes early on from the start of his career. Uh, saying, you know, he, he knew about the media and how mainstream media was just basically controlled. And so he wouldn't wear, um, you know, wouldn't get on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine unless they allowed him to wear a T-shirt that says corporate magazines still suck. And, of course, that's why it's so good to have media like yours, Sean, that helps get the word out. Um, but he also had a uh, said in an interview um, that ended up in a book that was a biography of Nirvana before Kurt Cobain died that um, he said that he originally wanted to put all kinds of anarchist essays and revolutionary essays on the cover of Nevermind, you know, Nirvana's album, Nevermind, which was a best-selling album, of course. And, uh, and, but he said, we better hold off on that. You know, I want to get more popular first so people take it more seriously. And so, um, you know, and he, he mocked uh, capitalist record, you know, label owners uh, about them just, being you know wealthy and greedy and uh he supported causes for abortion rights he supported causes you know anti-war kind of things he, he talked about um just a lot of good issues and uh he says he doesn't want anyone in his crowd that's racist he doesn't want any uh one in his crowd that's sexist and so he, he just had a lot of uh views that he expressed activist views he expressed and uh, the band, after he died, uh, ended up supporting the um, kind of strike, the, the big protest for workers against the um, uh, you know, World Trade Organization when they were meeting in, in Seattle. I believe it was um, not maybe a year after, a few, a few years after Cobain died. And with, you know, if Cobain was part of that, you know, uh, kind of, you know, big rally and protests, of course, that would have been much um more important and bigger but of course without Cobain Nirvana just wasn't the same and uh, of course they disbanded but um 
So I think that um, the key about him is, is that he, sadly enough, was duped by Courtney Love into getting involved in heroin because he had this massive stomach problem. Um, and the, the opiates really saw, hurt, solved his stomach problem ter- temporarily because he did not have a daily habit before he met uh, Courtney. He said he, in his diaries, he said he only tried uh, heroin about three or four times. And just because he was so desperate, he was throwing up all the time. And his stomach John, just, I'm just going to stop yeah. you briefly. Oh, for the purposes of this interview, then, are we all right to say white, brown, and green instead of the actual words? Otherwise, YouTube will stop us. It won't show the video. <laughs> Uh, sure. Um, white, brown, and green for what? Yeah, for the for okay. the various substances. So oh, sure, sure, yeah, no problem. Yeah. So yeah, yeah so um, let's say he he was uh, so Courtney Love started having him take inject white uh, regularly, daily, and he uh, and so you know he did develop a problem, and she she meanwhile uh, grew up in a super wealthy family. Um, she was, uh, you know, her mother admitted in a, uh, you know, a biography that, that she was probably abused from the ages of about three years old onwards. She, you know, she said she wrote a letter to her biological father saying she was sexually and physically abused by her therapist from early on, you know, from, and she was seeing therapists from the age of about three or four years old onwards. And so, um, you know, that can cause dissociative identity disorder. And meanwhile, by the time she was a teenager, she was a prostitute. She admitted being a prostitute and, you know, in letters. And she was a prostitute for uh, Asian mafia, believe it or not. She she said this in an authorized biography that she was part of the white sex trade, white, you know, white slave trade, she said in, uh, I believe it was Japan at the time. And um, and so, you know, she uh, also, it came out in, in, major you know, biographies of her that she brought a thousand hits of LSD to England when she was 17 years old. And why did she do that? You know, was she just, you know, uh, selling an opportunist trying to sell drugs? Um, but what we find out from her biological father is, is the fact that he says his letter, he had letters to prove it. Now he's passed now Hank Harrison, but he said he incidentally introduced Courtney Love to a guy named Stephen O'Leary when she was 17 years old and visited him in Ireland and Stephen O'Leary was working for the government, making weekly uh, reports to, to the embassy in Ireland, to the U S embassy in Ireland about things he was spying on in Ireland. And, um, and so he said he admitted on his deathbed, this, the, all this, and that he was traveling with Courtney he, uh, to England. She, he took her to England where she passed out this, you know, thousands of hits of LSD disrupted bands, you know, disrupted the pogues, disrupt, you know, slept with the drummer and who, and, um, you know, slept with loads of different musicians and, and musicians, you know, from these, you know, like Adam Ant and these, the, uh, other up and coming bands from England who made it big were, were really, uh, despised her being over there and, and passing out so many different drugs. Now go back 30 years from now, this was in the 1980s and you go back, as I say about, uh, uh, maybe 40 years or so, and you see that what happened with MK Ultra is the assistant director, a guy named Robert Lashwood, um, Lashbrook, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, according to uh, Ernest Hemingway's editor, A.E. Hotchner, who came out with a biography of the Rolling Stones and the whole music scene in England, he says Robert Lashbrook took tons of LSD agents, 
and money to London in 1965 as part of MK Ultra, you know, and, and try, try to get them LSD in as many musicians' hands as possible. So here is Courtney Love duplicating that activity, that behavior. And the reason, obviously, is to manipulate and disrupt things uh, and use musicians who are beloved by many to popularize acid, to disrupt people's minds with acid. And so I show all kinds of evidence of that throughout my book, but um, with Courtney Love, she ended up doing it in London, then she ended up, I'm sorry, near, in England, and she ended up doing it in Manchester, I believe it was, but she ended up doing it through many top music scenes in the United States. She went through um, to Portland, she went to Los Angeles, she went to obviously Seattle, um, and did the same thing, passed out drugs like candy, um, LSD, opiates, you know, painkillers, all kinds of things. She had tons of drugs on her all the time, just as a teenager. You know, where does this woman get so many different drugs? And um, and then she married the top punk musician in Los Angeles who, who thought, you know, he thought he was marrying a, a left-wing rebellious woman. And it turns out she was, a, he called her a right-wing Phyllis Diller. She said she uh, slept with uh, generals, army generals in Alaska, and they, they told her why wars are good for us, you know, good for America. And uh, so she was just, you know, ridiculous. And he got finally got away from her and divorced her. And then she goes and finds the top musician in Seattle, who was, of course, Kurt Cobain, and latches on to him when, when Nirvana's Nevermind was rising up the charts really fast and convinces him to, you know, um, use heroin daily. But a year before he he died, uh, Cobain got off of heroin. He found his uh, a cure for a stomach problem. He said this in interviews, and he found a cure for a stomach problem. And a month before his death, Cobain's death, he you know he had gone to the hospital in Rome. He had, he um, overdosed on rohypnol, and it was Courtney's uh, prescription rohypnol that she got because it's legal in England. It's not legal in the United States, and rohypnol's roofies. It's sleeping medication, but they're called roofies because people use them to put them in people's drinks and they don't remember what happened, you know, um, but they, they're passed out from the rohypnol, the roofies, and then, you know, they rape them, you know, and it's horrible. But so she apparently put tons of roofies or rohypnol in his drink. He, he had went into a coma and people acted like it was a suicide attempt, but it was her rohypnol. He, they found no other illicit drugs whatsoever in Cobain's um, body at that time, even though he was on tour with Nirvana through Europe. And this was, you know, in Italy at the time he was playing concerts in Italy. And uh, everyone said that he was not using any drugs. Every, all the musicians were smoking weed or drinking and he wasn't touching anything. And, and, uh, and he, he was divorcing Courtney at the time. Courtney, he just wanted to see his daughter and, and um, Courtney had his daughter. So she brought the daughter over to see him. And so it's really, uh, that was probably first murder attempt number one. And then, um, the second time, of course, worked. Now, we've got witnesses such as uh, musician Ellen Hoke, who said she offered him uh, some 60 grand to kill Kurt Cobain, gave him a map about where how to find him in the house and everything else of Seattle. And she now the newest the news on this whole case came out recently with, let's say, six to 12 months, I'll say, where um, the FBI finally released some documents they had on Kurt Cobain. So he released about 10 or 12 documents, pages of their file on Kurt Cobain. Now, why they have a file on Kurt Cobain is, you know, another story, of course, and it's a big story. 
but they, they have a file. It's obviously they have many more pages than the 10, 10 to 12 pages I read. And uh, they were getting all kinds of uh, information from different sources that you've got to investigate, you know, Kurt Cobain's death because it does it appears to be a murder and not a um, you know, suicide. And so it turns out at the time of Cobain's death, um, she, Courtney Love, hired a detective, Tom Grant, who was a private detective, but was, was formerly a murder detective for the Los Angeles County Police Department. Tom Grant end, ends up finding loads of information that and, and loads of evidence that Courtney Love played a part in her husband's death. And he took it all to the Los Angeles Police Department he used to work with, to the uh, Seattle Police Department, who, you know, didn't you just ignored him and um you know and nobody would look at it nobody would you know take it seriously and um so here was the fbi getting lots of this information too and and unsolved mysteries uh did some work on this case and hired uh, the top um forensic examiner um cyril wecht to look at the case and he said he he highly believed that um Kurt Cobain's uh, death was staged as a suicide to hide that it was a homicide. You know, it was definitely a homicide, he believed. And uh, he was the former head of the American Forensics Association, you know, for uh, studying people, you know, deaths. And so uh, this is just some of the evidence that Kurt Cobain was actually murdered and not, you know, wasn't a suicide. Now, um, so FBI says that they can't investigate this because it's not in their jurisdiction. And, you know, they say people have to cross state lines for them to investigate. Uh, and when they cross state lines, they, they don't have to murder anyone, cross state lines of murdering anyone. They just have to plan to murder someone. So Courtney Love went from Seattle. Eldon Hoke said on tape for um, Nick Broomfield's film, Kurt and Courtney, that, uh, that Courtney Love came from Seattle, Los Angeles, visited him in his record store, and offered him $60,000 to kill Kurt Cobain. And that's all in film. And so state lines were crossed. The plan was made for murder. And the FBI says they can't investigate it. It's a joke. And so the FBI is, is covering up, obviously, for you know higher in, intelligence you know, agents like CIA. And uh, so the obvious thing that was going on, and this was a pattern amongst musicians, is they were they, manip- they tried to manipulate Kurt Cobain to promote heroin, which he, he did inadvertently. He didn't want to, but you know, of course, the media talking about him using did promote heroin, and, and it and use in America went up drastically every year during the nineties, from 91, 92, 93, 10 percent a year. And um, we have this heroin chic and all over here, and it's probably worldwide, of course. And um, but when you know, then when he sobered up, he was a concern for promoting sobriety and, and activism. And uh, he had to be done away with, sadly enough. And, uh, and that's what, you know, appeared to happen. Now, the other evidence, of course, against uh, Courtney Love is the fact that, I mean, I, there's more that's com- that I'm going to be coming out with in a sequel to my Drugs as Weapons Against this film. But um, the other evidence is the fact that, you know, as I said before, that Courtney Love ends up as one of the circled uh, witnesses in um, Jeff Epstein's Black Book, okay? Jeff Epstein, you know, the sex trafficker and all. Yeah, that, we're, we're, we're banned from talking about that case on this channel, John. Oh, no worries. No more talk about it they, then. They, um, YouTube terminated my channel twice over it completely. And no more talk about it then. Um, and this it was, is what uh, we the, the, world the, we the live in now. To, the public had to lobby to get the public public had to lobby to get the channel back. 
Yeah, it was a crazy situation. All right, so let me just talk to the viewers then. So, viewers, we are talking to John Potash about the mysterious death of Kurt Cobain and the role of the CIA and Courtney Love in it. If you've got any questions for John about this subject, because he is an expert on a lot of subjects, about Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love and the CIA, if you've got any questions for John, please put them in the chat and we'll get them to him before we go over to other conspiracies, including JFK. So the first question that's coming in, John, is that is it is it because she had friends in high places that she did not face any consequences for this? Yeah, so I think she did have friends in high places, but um, I I believe that she probably uh, because of her childhood abuse um, and a lot of things I read about her, she probably was suffering from dissociative disorder or dissociative identity disorder. Um, and I, you know, I can't go through all, I don't have time to go through all the evidence of that, but I am a, you know, a licensed psychotherapist, um, went in network with many insurance companies and, um, trauma is my specialty. And so I've seen, uh, the you know, different signs of dissociative disorder and she appears to exhibit them. And, uh, so she probably didn't even know everything she was doing. Um, and so she was probably, um, being handled and was the puppet of these, these higher authorities. Um, she had, you know, they call them handlers that she had in her life. And, um, in my next film, I'm going to, you can, you can see just even in my first film, you can hear some names of what might've been her handlers, but my next film goes in a little bit more, touches a little bit more on those handlers that are still with her, you know, can be seen with her in videos today. Loads of questions flooding in. Method wants to know who would have instructed Courtney. Would that have been the handlers? Yeah. Yeah. They, 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 well, they would have, yeah, they would have manipulated her or instructed her, you know, on how to do things, but she, you know, again, wouldn't have known exactly uh, what everything she was doing, except, you know, they just guided her in, in whatever she did to uh, do, do what she did. I mean, she was, violently brutally violent against uh cat you know um kathy hannah of bikini kill great musician she punched her in the face at the at Lollapalooza out of nowhere and sonic youth threatened to uh leave as headliners for that Lollapalooza tour when they saw that because they were good friends with kathleen hannah and she you know would uh grab photographers or journalists she didn't like and drag them around by the hair you know, female uh, photographers or journalists. And, you know, there was all kinds of uh, lawsuits against her, but in charge, you know, but no charges went through for, for all of her brutality against so many other people. Andrew wants to know, did you hear about her kidnapping her daughter's husband and almost having him killed? Yes. Um, that's an interesting case. Um, Cause some of her handlers, yeah, I forget the guy's name, but yeah, one of her, um, managers uh i believe or, or talent talent people pr people i forget the guy's name now was involved in that directly involved in that and uh you know in, in basically kidnapping and trying to take things from her daughter's husband and uh there was a big lawsuit by him over that and um hopefully that's going to reveal a lot more but I, I i don't even know where that's gone at this point in time i, I just there's so many details of it all and i'm just yeah i had to move i moved on to other subjects at, you know by that point in time jake wants to know what specific evidence links her to the cia yeah so i said some of them but i'll say them again for sure i don't mind no question's a bad question here guys so thanks for the questions 
Um, so one of them is that her, her biological father, Hank Harrison, said that so somebody befriended him when he was doing uh, writing a book and, and doing research on a book in Ireland. Um, he was a he, he was a therapist and a writer, actually, this guy, Hank Harrison. And um, he so he's in Ireland. She comes to stay with him in Ireland. And um, some guy named Stephen O'Leary had uh, befriended Hank Harrison saying, oh, I, I love the Grateful Dead. And Hank Harrison used to be a manager for the Grateful Dead when they first started. And so Harrison said he didn't really think much of this guy. Um, but he introduced him to his daughter. This guy starts sleeping with the 17 year old, you know, daughter of Hank Harrison's because, um, Courtney Love was sleeping with tons of people. I mean, 17, it's not a big deal, except she was a prostitute by that time for the Japanese mafia, according to her by bi different biographies on her. And so nonetheless, she, she was carrying a thousand hits of acid and here this, um, older, you know, this guy in his late twenties or so, um, Stephen O'Leary takes her to London and uh where she distributes this acid to top musicians you know i'm sorry in england you know through in top english music scenes and so um that's one and so on his deathbed stephen o'leary said i was actually working for u.s intelligence at that time said i was visiting the you know i, I didn't really have a high high position but i was had to visit the embassy u.s embassy once a week to give reports on people so he was spying in ireland for u.s intelligence and that's you know so he was connected to u.s intelligence um, most likely cia because of this kind of activities that cia is involved in like mk ultra you know with passing out you know lsd and stuff the second link though is the fact that uh jeff epstein um was found to be part of u.s intelligence um the uh trump you know, president trump's labor secretary alex acosta said that when he was um, vetted uh, for his position, they said, well, why didn't you go to, you know, why didn't you work harder on the prosecution of Jeff Epstein at the time when he was prosecuting him in Florida earlier, early on when Jeff Epstein was like taken to court in, in 2005. And he said, well, I was told that Epstein is U.S. intelligence and he's got a much higher pay grade than you do, so don't touch him. And so here is Epstein's U.S. intelligence Courtney Love's circled as a material witness in what Epstein was doing in his black book. And Courtney Love, you know, was obviously involved with Jeffrey Epstein and what he's doing. We're going we're, we're to have to leave that one. Uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. You told yeah, me that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm so sorry. All right. Adam Ant, Adam Ant went bonkers, didn't he? Do you think Adam Ant was one of her victims? Yeah, I, well, um, I think all all of that scene, uh, all of those musicians in that scene were victims. Yeah, Adam Ant, the drummer for the Pogues. Um, there was some other Echo and the Bunnymen. Um, they were all, you know, uh, targets for for Courtney Love. Yes. Imogen wants to know why Kurt didn't see through Courtney. Kurt was ridiculously intelligent. I agree. Qu uh, Kurt was ridiculously intelligent, and um, I think he did see through Courtney. And that's why he was divorcing her uh, at the time of his death. Um, you know, I have in my film, you know, I have uh, his lawyer saying, you know, basically that that he was divorcing her and all. Um, and that was, you know, uh, recorded by Tom Grant, the investigator. And so the problem was Kurt Cobain was just too nice of a guy that when, you know, Courtney Love did the old uh kind of trick of getting pregnant um early on in their dating he he decided well he's going to do the right thing and marry her and uh but then when she 
was just so caustic and terrible um, in in their marriage. He he you know had said he had to divorce her, and he was divorcing her, and that's that's what what happened. Yeah. Kim Smith wants to know if Courtney has a child. Yeah, I mean that you know, Kurt and Courtney um, had, do have a child together. Who's an adult who we were talking about got married to that other music to that musician, and um, you know Francis Bean Cobain, her name is. Okay, and Linda wants to know why the CIA could not just use hypnosis without the abuse. Well, um, they find that it takes a few different kinds of uh, you know ritual kind of techniques that that help you know someone become an asset, and uh, only certain people here only ten percent of the population uh, is so open to hypnosis that they they can just use hypnosis. But um, with most people, they find it takes drugs and hypnosis. Kim wants to know if Courtney's mother is a therapist. Courtney's mother appears to be similar to her daughter is my understanding um, because she ends up uh, being a therapist. Yes. For um, some interesting people, like one of the members of the weather underground, she was a therapist for one of them. And that's similar to like Dr. Jolyon West, who was a psychiatrist um, and a psychiatrist for Jack Ruby when he, after he shot Lee Harvey Oswald, who was supposedly, you know, J JFK's president Kennedy's, uh, assassin. And so, um, yeah, I think she's, uh, a therapist that controls some political victims. Yeah. See why Ed wants to know where was Courtney when Kurt died? Uh, Courtney was getting herself arrested in, I believe, in Los Angeles at the time to take away suspicion from her being involved. But she had a group of men that were at her home that appeared to be involved. And uh, that group of men, male heroin addicts um, who, who Kurt Cobain tried to fire, apparently uh, drugged uh, Kurt with diazepam, with like a, a benzodiazepine. And then, you know, uh, grabbed him and, and, you know, forced things to happen to him, you know, such as killing him. Yeah. Stephen wants to know, did the other Nirvana band members know what was going on? I, I don't know. I really don't know. I don't think so, but I, I just can't. I, I really don't know. All right. We've now got about, I know you've got so many subjects you can talk about. We'd love to get you back, John. Thanks. Let's for the rest of it. Let's go over to JFK then, shall we? Because that's what we've scheduled. Sure. And Sean, I, I know about censorship, so please keep cutting me off if I, uh, you know, get into things <laughs> that are, can get 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 you censored. It's a tough world out there these days for us people trying to get the truth. Out. Yeah, I think we're safer. Yeah. We're safer with JFK than. <laughs> so these are sad, you know, tragic subjects from you know about people we we love and and you know and you know yeah people love Cobain. I loved you know Cobain was a credible talent, incredible person, and of course JFK, John President John F Kennedy. Um, thanks, Annabelle. Um, so I I was going to say that President John F Kennedy um, was just so so much more unbelievable than I realized when I started researching all. His history, and I, I didn't. I, I in my drugs as weapons against this book, um, I got a little bit into the JFK assassination, but I really covered more of you know more put more pages into Robert F Kennedy's assassination because there was such a clear MK Ultra 
um, tie on that, you know, CIA MKL, MKUltra tie to his assassination because uh, Sirhan Sirhan was, according to a Harvard um, specialist, Harvard psychiatrist, uh, he was clearly hypnotized. And uh, this Harvard psychiatrist spent 500 hours studying, examining Sirhan Sirhan and said that, yeah, hypnosis was used and, you know, uh, drugs were used to create Sirhan Sirhan as a, you know, patsy for um, our, you know, Robert Kennedy's um, assassination. Let me just Robert interrupt Kennedy. you there briefly, John, because we, we just interviewed a guy called Joey Torres, T-O-R-R-E-S. We did three, four podcasts with him. He served yeah. 10 years with Saran Saran. And wow. um, I'll send you over what he said about Saran because it, it uh, ties into what you're saying there. Okay, thanks, Sean. Um, so that sounds really interesting. So, so yeah, so um, I ended up, of course, uh, studying, you know, John F. Kennedy a bit, but I, I befriended um, a guy named the late John Judge was a, uh, a, a big researcher on President John F. Kennedy's assassination and held annual conferences um, uh, and developed a group called the Committee on Political Assassinations that had Cyril Wecht as part of it. I mentioned Cyril Wecht about Cobain's case. Cyril Wecht was a was a top, um, you know, medical examiner in the country, and also studied. He's he's in his eighties now, so he he was of age. He was a professional when JFK was assassinated. President Kennedy was assassinated, and he studied the the autopsy on President Kennedy. And so he came out in a in a new film, a documentary series, like a four part uh, four hour documentary um, about JFK by Oliver Stone. And so Oliver Stone um, hired uh, a writer named Jim DiEugenio to write uh, that documentary that it was, you know, ended up being four hours. And, um, and so they first turned into a two-hour release uh, nationally and maybe internationally. But then they, they later, a year or two later, they, they released the four-hour version. And so I wrote a, um, a, review, a review, a film review of the two-hour version. And uh, Jim DiEugenio just liked what I wrote. And asked me, could I please review the uh, four-hour version? So um, I uh, ended up doing that, and it, it was basically uh, amazing to hear the president, uh, President John F. Kennedy's history as a senator. He visited Vietnam in 1951 with his brother Robert Kennedy, who was his top aide, you know, even back then as a senator, and they. Um, came back just saying this is terrible what um you know imperialism is doing to you know to in vietnam what you know and what french you know the french are doing in vietnam and we should not get involved basically and then he also uh as a senator spoke out against uh colonization and imperialism by the u.s and other countries on the senate floor he gave a radical speech like that in 1957 as a senator and he was shunned by Democrats and Republicans alike. And that's, you know, that's who he was before he became president. It's pretty amazing. Um, I could not imagine today a senator speaking out so, you know, bluntly and directly against, you know, uh, Europe, you know, American and European imperialism, you know, in other, other countries this way. And so um, by the time he reached, you know, the presidency, he did run on a somewhat, you know, a, basically a more moderate platform to, to reach the presidency. But once he was in, he first uh, was pushed very hard by lots of powerful forces to uh, 
continue with an operation that was already afoot to invade Cuba because of the Cuban Revolution. So he agreed to do it, but he would not allow any aerial strikes by any planes. And, um, you know, it's possible he did that on purpose, you know, and the the CIA hated him for that because it was obviously the Bay of Pigs was a big defeat. But he was he was pushed into doing it by the CIA. He fired the CIA director, um, you know, at that point in time, uh, Alan Dulles, uh, because of the whole debacle, and um, but wouldn't allow air coverage for that invading force. And um, and when when President Kennedy was assassinated, um, Fidel Castro said, "This is a terrible day for for Cuba and the world." Um, so, you know, as much as, uh, Castro was upset, of course, about him, you know, uh, you know, but the Bay of Pigs, he, Castro knew that he was the, the best that America could offer. Um, and so the, you know, he was, uh, brokering deals with Nikita Khrushchev. Um, you know, he was uh, calling for the disarmament of nuclear, you know, of, of all nuclear arms, dismantling of nuclear arms. He was, um, just doing a lot of great things, you know. When I told said before, he was he dismantled MK Ultra. That was that was major. Um, he's calling for peace with the Soviet Union. He he had a speech calling for national health care in the United States, you know, which never happened. But for him to call for that in the early 1960s is amazing. Um, he says all the European countries have national health national health insurance. You know, every industrialized country basically has national health insurance except for the U.S. And, um, you know, he pointed that out in speeches. And so there was lots of reasons for the, the oligarchs, the corporate, you know, owners, you know, multinational corporate owners in our country, the wealthiest in our country to hate him for these things. Um, he also was, you know, first he thought that um, he allowed what the generals wanted, which was a, uh, some, some incursions in Vietnam. But then he started pulling troops back out of Vietnam. And he announced that we are going to have all troops and uh, leaving Vietnam within a year. And uh, so I have all that evidence of him doing that in my book and film, Drugs as Weapons Against Us. And um, that was a big issue because Vietnam was part of the golden triangle for opium and opium crops, and which produces white, lots of white throughout the world. You know, it's the biggest uh, trafficker of white throughout the world, of opium and all throughout the world. and um, and so um, the powers that be, I show, I show evidence that they've been uh, long involved in opium throughout the world. Um, you know, the, the wealthiest in our country and and Britain with the British East India, you know, um, company, uh, they were always, you know, connected. And the, the wealthiest in our country are often called Anglophiles because they love the uh, royalty of, of Britain. And um, they were all involved in the opium trade and uh, still are. And they're still being J.P. Morgan um, boats, you know, owned boats were caught with with uh, other forms of white from, you know, Latin America and uh, with tons of, of white in there, you know, transporting, trafficking tons of white. And so this is what, you know, we're, we're dealing with. Um, and, yeah, you know, I'm glad uh, Bjorn just said about the opium wars in Afghanistan. So the two, you know, uh, longest wars in, in U.S. history were. Vietnam and Afghanistan. And um, it's no coincidence that they are the sites for the two best opium producing, you know, like poppy producing uh, areas in the world. You know, they call them the golden triangle uh, for poppy 
poppies in um, you know Vietnam area, and the Golden Crescent for poppies, poppy production, you know, poppy growing in uh, the Afghanistan area. And so, yeah, that's that's part of why they they assassinated him. Now, if you look at the assassin, uh, you know, the purported assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald, um, he was working for the U.S. government on the U-2 plane uh, spy plane project before he was, you know, uh, purported to be the assassin of of President Kennedy. And uh, then you look at Jack Ruby, who killed Lee Harvey Oswald, the patsy, just a few days later. And, and Jack Ruby um, was an FBI informant, okay? He was working. I mean, he means he was paid by the FBI. And so this came out from a senator um, who was investigating this. Um, you know, U.S. senator was investigating this named Schweitzer, and he said that he found he was told by FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover that, um, you know, that Jack Ruby was a paid FBI informant. So um, this is some of the way it all works. And, um, you know, the, the CIA was all over basically that assassination. Um, you know, you had uh, just so many different now, you know, in, in the documentary, uh, they, they interview Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who says that uh, his dad, the first thing he did after um, that RFK, I mean, to get, after his um, brother was assassinated, was he called the CIA and he said, uh, tell me you know, who was behind this horror in your agency, basically, you know, and um, and then they had two, eight, two uh, war veterans who were you know, part of security for JFK in the car behind JFK when he was assassinated. And they both said there was a crossfire of bullets that killed JFK, President Kennedy, and uh, not the uh, one lone assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald, from a sixth floor building behind JFK. And witnesses in that building said that, that Lee Harvey Oswald was not on the sixth floor uh, from the place they said he was to kill, you know, uh, JFK. And then you have uh, a police expert saying that, um, you know, that, that the gun that, that he, he was, he originally found was not the same gun they said uh, was used in the trial. You know, like they, they brought out as evidence of the gun that killed JFK. Um, and there's, there's so many different points of evidence that you can see in um you know in this four-hour documentary to show that that uh this was all covered up jfk had hired a black security guard you know basically you know appointed a black security guard to be part of his detail and uh that black security guard said he had evidence to show that it was you know multiple gunmen that killed president kennedy and so when he came out with that they, they jailed him for some frivolous thing and shut him up um so there was just, uh, you know, there was that, there was the doctors that, um, that, that looked at, uh, president Kennedy right after he was shot. They said it was clearly, um, a bullet that came in through his throat, the front of his throat, and also came in through the front of his head. And, um, that's what they first said. And then, um, they came, you know, people came down and said, no, you have to change that to the back. And so he was forced the next day to change it to the back. But two people that were close with that doctor said he admitted that, yeah, they, they made him change what he, you know, what he examined, the, what he said about the bullet entry wounds in his examination of JFK's body after, after the assassination. 
Didn't a piece of his head end up on the car and his wife scrambled out and grabbed it? Well, I I don't believe his head uh, like ended. I, I don't think it came completely off now and ended up on the car. But piece, basically, a piece, like a fragment or something. Oh, yeah, yeah. A piece might have come off for sure. Yeah, no doubt. And she was just, I, I don't know if she grabbed it, but I know she was filled with blood on her coat. And, uh, and she, um, and after, you know, after the assassination, she said, they said, uh, don't you want to change your coat when you speak to, you know, one camera after this all happened? And she said, no, I'm not changing my coat. I want to, I want to, you know, show the world what they did to him. And she said they did to him. She knew it was multiple gunmen and she knew it was powerful forces that did this. It wasn't one lone assassin. She knew that from the start. She knew, you know, she, she could see you know here experience these bullets whizzing in in front of of uh president kennedy coming at him and from all different angles and that's what it was it was a crossfire that killed kennedy just like his you know aides and backup who were you know veterans of combat said you know i mean his security detail behind him so yeah and you know and then you got the magic bullet which uh, supposedly came in through the back of kennedy went through you know hit like injured two or three different parts of Kennedy and then jumped to the front to the seat in front of him and injured two different parts of uh Senator, you know, uh, uh, I mean, his vice president, vice president, you know? And so, um, that's, you know, that's the, the good, good old magic bullet that Cyril Weck talked about. The path was ridiculous and the bat, and then the bullet magically comes out unscathed, you know, of, of the second person it hits, you know, in three different places. And so uh, it was obviously a crossfire and a number of bullets to make sure the assassination was successful. And so, of course, once they got rid of JFK, they had Lyndon Johnson in their pocket and Johnson just uh, reversed of, uh, you know, John Kennedy's policies and, um, you know, pushed for the Vietnam War to escalate in a big way. And, you know, and uh, ended a kind of uh, peace detente with uh, the Soviet Union, et cetera. All right, so we've got about 10 minutes left with John. If you've got any questions on JFK only, put them in the chat because we're going to, there's probably going to be quite a few. And we're going to run out of time here. Um, do you think, John, that LBJ had foreknowledge? Yeah, I, I don't know for sure. Um, my guess is yes, he apparently didn't like um, Kennedy. And his brother, uh, is my understanding, he was, you know, more of a political pick for vice president. And um, I, uh, you know, I think he probably did have some some foreknowledge in some way, shape, or form. Um, so yeah, I'm sorry. And the person in front of uh, Kennedy wasn't Johnson, the vice president it was a just another um, uh, somebody else. I think a senator from Texas. Maybe, um, but nonetheless, um, yeah, I, I do think he probably had foreknowledge. I don't know for sure, though. Um, my guess is that he, he did have some foreknowledge. I, I've heard evidence that he did, so he probably did. Very funny question, Papa, but we've got to stick to JFK questions only, please. So, John, what was the role of the Cold War in this? Well, you know, it's uh, all these uh, American oligarchs wanted to you know have a heightened war with soviet union they wanted just constant the america to be on war footing so they can make so much money off of weapons so that they can control americans easier by pretending like there's a constant menace you know um and um yeah i think that those were 
major issues and the fact that JFK was thawing the gold, the cold war in a major, a big way that played a, a part in their motives to, to assassinate him. And how many Kennedys were assassinated? That's a good question. Um, well, uh, I've got, you know, there's massive evidence, of course, on President John F. Kennedy and, uh, and Senator Robert F. Kennedy, who was about to become president um, before he was assassinated because he had won the California primary um, right before his assassination. And that was a sign that he was going to win the Democratic primary. And um, he just was uh, just too popular. There's no way anyone was going to defeat him for president. Um, and so it's clear cut on those two. Now, um, I've read and seen evidence of several attempts on um, Ted Kennedy's life also. Um, and I don't think, um, I think that's not just, can't be just a coincidence. Um, you know, as he was probably, they were worried about his influence as a, a really uh, popular Senator. And, um, he, he could have, uh, he could have been president. I think people in the democratic party had to organize in a special way to keep him from uh, being the presidential candidate. I heard in, um, when it was him against, uh, president Carter and, uh, Granted, President Carter was one of our better presidents, um, you know, relatively speaking. He was definitely one of our better, best presidents um, since since JFK. But nobody was going to be, you know, like a Kennedy. Um, the Kennedys were much more uh, progressive in a positive way, you know, like um, uh, than any other candidates. And so there was a huge fight in the primary um, between Carter and Ted Kennedy. Um, and I think it was 1980 or so. I mean, sorry, 1976, I mean. And um, I heard there was a huge fight about that, who was going to be the uh, candidate. And the Carter people won that fight. But um, I think it was similar to like Bernie Sanders being the most popular candidate, you know, in the, you know, in the recent elections. They, there was no way they were going to let Bernie Sanders be the um, nominee for the Democratic Party. And because he, he was the most popular, you know, American candidate running, no doubt. And um, so it was a similar situation. They, they were not going to let Ted Kennedy get near the presidency. Question from Jake. Oh, and Why one more. I just, I just add one more answer to that is I do think that okay. uh, John F. Kennedy Jr. was assassinated also. But um, that's more controversial than the others, believe it or not. Okay, go Jake on. Jake wants to know why no major whistleblowers were come forward. Weren't they all killed? Weren't hundreds of people killed around this? Oh yeah, I mean members of the Warren Commission even were were killed, is my understanding, is what I've heard. But yeah, um, yeah, I think witnesses were shut up um, or done away with. You know, yeah, I think there was other people killed too. But I'm sorry, what were we going to say, Sean? Even members of the Warren Commission were killed. Yeah, it's my understanding. Ones that went against uh, things that happened, um, you know, there that that kind of opposed the way you know it was being manipulated. But I, I, I don't have all the, you know, remember all the evidence of that. So I, I can't get into that deeply. I'm sorry. Nitrum said it was Texas Governor John Connolly sat in front of Kennedy. Thank you. Thank you. Ray J has a question for you, John. Was the death of JFK the final takeover move by the deep state and the end of democracy? Well, um, it was major, no doubt. I'm probably one of the biggest, you know, events. Um, you know, you can call it the deep state, you can call it whatever. Um, 
it, the deep state that that uh, idea uh, that term actually came from a um, a professor over here, um, Peter Dale Scott, who's a Canadian originally, but um, was a Canadian diplomat and then became a uh, University of California Berkeley professor who's written excellent books about drugs and uh, politics that um, I've used for sources for my book. But um, so, you know, Trump kind of took over that term, uh, but it's a um, it's an important term. It's really, you know, just like the idea of U.S. intelligence having too much control over our country and thus having too much you know, power you know, with British intelligence or Tavistock Institute in, in Britain over the world. Um, but yeah, it was a major, definitely maybe it's arguably the most important, you know, takeover democracy, but you know, my, other people might argue that 911 was, uh, the biggest take, you know, usurpation of democracy. We've only got two or three minutes left. If you've got any final questions for John, squeeze them in there now. We'll try and do short answers to get through them. Uh, Method wants to know if the Kennedys were involved in Marilyn Monroe's murder. Well, there, you know, some people make that speculation, and I don't, I, I don't believe it's the case. I mean, there were so many uh, attempts. You know, when when you got political targets like the Kennedys, in the same way, you know, I'm not saying that they weren't promiscuous, and you know that maybe. JFK or RFK or whoever didn't sleep with Marilyn Monroe. It's certainly possible, but no, I don't believe uh, that they murdered her. I think that um, uh, they, you know, there was an attempt to smear uh, the Kennedys with with the murder of Marilyn Monroe, um, and just because they were such targets, you know, for U.S. intelligence and the the kind of the evidence that that uh, I've seen when um, you know, that they, the Kennedys were behind Marilyn Monroe's death are, it's just, it's bad sources. It's sources that are police connected, that are have biases that, um, you know, and police, even local police are connected to U.S. intelligence. Police intelligence units overlap with the FBI. There's FBI agents there in our country that are both police and FBI. And I document that in my books, the FBI warned to Pak Shakur and um, as well as drugs as weapons against us. So, I think they planted evidence to pretend the Kennedys were involved, but they, I don't believe they were involved. We still have a few questions. Can we just do very short answers on these ones? We've right. got Harjit. Would, are you willing to believe the victim was a JFK body double? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, Je uh, Rebecca, was Lee Harvey Oswald really assassinated? Yes, by Jack Ruby. Was JFK on the UFO files? Onto the UFO files. I don't know what the UFO files are. All right. Let's see. Excellent interview. Conspiracy. All right. We have actually uh, almost run out of time, John. All right. So can people contact you on your socials and ask you questions and follow you? Yeah. And Go to John Potash, J-O-H-N-P-O-T-A-S-H.com. It's also titled drugsasweapons.com and you can uh, contact me through that website for sure and I'll respond to your questions if you'd like but you can see all my films and all my books you know on that website as well as other articles and other issues on that website and Ash has just sent me a little note as one of our most best received guests by the viewers John he's 
apparently going to invite you on to our hundredth episode, which is three weeks from now, I believe. So <laughs> three, that'd be four great. Weeks now, Thanks so. so much, Sean and Ash, for that. That'd be great. Oh, I really appreciate that. You take care, my friends. You do the same, Sean. Thanks again for having me on. All right, cheers, John. Bye. Wow. Thank you for all your questions, everyone. John is fascinating. It was a few years ago we had him on and we got a tremendous response back then. I can see you guys with all your questions are very supportive of his work. And I learned so much, especially about what's the bloody name? Courtney Love. Wow. What a uh, man-eater and psycho psychotic person. <laughs> all right. So Charlie Robertson is with us. Hello. Hey, Charlie. Hi. How's it going, brother? It's going all right here from snowy Colorado in April, which is a crime against humanity. <laughs> so we're going to be talking about the indictment of Donald Trump. What oh. the hell is going on over there? Well, they better be careful because they're about to make this guy a martyr. You know, they're about to make him uh, come across. You've done a lot of work on organized crime. You remember uh, John Gotti, the Teflon Don, as they called him? Oh, what happens if Trump, what if? What happens if this thing doesn't go to trial? What happens if it does go to trial and he wins? It is going to backfire on these people. It's one thing if you have a rock solid case, you know, like you know, something that, that that's sort of hard to deny and everybody knows is is a real problem. But with these kind of wishy-washy ones, and I'm no attorney, I, I, can't, I can't speak to this from a from a legal standpoint, but I do understand optics and the optics of if you, if it's this time we've got them, you know, which is what's on MSNBC and CNN 24 seven, this, the walls are closing in this time we've got them. And then he slips through your fingers again. You're just going to make him more powerful. You're just going to seal your, your own fate. So again, if the, if the plan is we're going to, we're going to indict him, we're going to get him so that he can't run again. And that's your strategy because you don't have anybody better to run. You have a, 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 a president that can't, uh, you know, that shits his pants with the Pope and can't keep it together and can't string a sentence together. The best thing that you've got is to just destroy the other guy. You better make sure you destroy the other guy, because if you leave him alive and you don't finish him off, he will come back. I've watched enough of these action movies. I know how it ends. You leave that guy uh, uh, alive and he crawls off, regains his strength and comes back and defeats you. So they better be very careful how they deal with Donald Trump. And I have no energy. I'm no Trump fan. Um, I do like the way he makes the media crazy. I do. like. He makes all the right people insane. So I do like that about him. But I, I'm no I'm, I'm not pro trump i'm definitely against this i'm definitely against this this witch hunt that's been going on for a long long time that they're trying to just pin whatever they can on him too he had he had too many parking tickets let's put him in let's take him to trial you know it's like well you better make sure you get him on something good you know he claimed he could shoot somebody in times square in broad daylight and he'd, he'd get off you better you better hope that you've got the video footage of him shooting somebody in times square if you want to put this man behind bars because his attorneys know how it all works. His his attorney for the 80s and 90s, or, or I guess all of the eight, 70s and 80s, was Roy Cohn. Roy Cohn had the blackmail information on J. Edgar Hoover. R Trump's attorney was blackmailing the head of the FBI at some point, you know, for a long, long time, back, I think, before Trump was even his client. So there's a long history of wanting Trump behind bars. Good luck with that.
Right, I've got a few questions on this, and I'm sure the viewers do as well. We've got Charlie Robinson. He's come on impromptu. If you've got any questions for him, put them in the chat. And his links are all in the description box. So please support his work. And I'm going to be going on his platform here soon as well. Yeah. Um, so I once read a book called, I think it was called The Need for Enemies. And it had various strategies to um, exploit enemy positions. Do you think that this could be some kind of Machiavellian martyrdom strategy that Trump himself is playing a role in encouraging? I don't think he's entirely opposed to this, considering they have a weak case. I think that if if they really had the goods on him for something monumental, then he might worry that the the courts and the media perception and the jurors and the judges were all stacked against him. But on something like this, I don't think, and, and really all those things will be stacked against him, but, but, but it not in a, I, I don't think this is a real big case. This is, this is, this is not something that uh, ranks with uh, a, you know, a, a real crime against humanity. I mean, there's a lot of wiggle room and gray area in this whole thing. If it were open and shut slam, slam dunk case, that, you know, that'd be one thing, but they're, they're, I think they might be walking into a trap frankly i mean i think that 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 this is going to be the old obi-wan kenobi if you strike me down i will become more powerful than you can possibly imagine and that is probably what will happen with trump uh, uh, his base doesn't need it right they, they're enthusiastic supporters they understand they're not going to, they're not going to leave him but those those ones that are sort of on the DeSantis side they may see this as um well what they really may see is we love Ron DeSantis. We're we're lukewarm on Trump. We're Republicans, but we prefer DeSantis's flavor as opposed to Trump's. But they're going to have to make a calculation if he get if if they go through this trial and it, and it winds up not going even to a jury or it winds up not even happening or he gets acquitted of it. They're going to have to make a calculation. Those sort of fringe Republican voters. Well, do we split the vote? by going for DeSantis and then, and then leaving a bunch of people voting for Trump, but not enough for him to win. Or do we recognize the amount of momentum that Trump has and jump over here for the next four years, go get Trump elected and then uh, come back to DeSantis who might, might've been their favorite, might've been their preferred, but they have to make some sort of calculus about, uh, the reality of the situation splitting the vote. So, and, and let's be honest, they're going to have to learn how to steal elections because the Democrats do it. They know how to do that. So if you're, if you're not cheating, you're not trying when it comes to politics, right? So, so these people are going to have to, the Republicans have always been, no, we don't want you guys to, to, to do all the mail-in ballots and we don't want, they rigged it. They rigged it. I mean, I, you'll, nobody will ever get me to believe that 81 million people went to vote for Joe Biden when he had a, he had a an event in Arizona that drew no people. The 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 reporter was I'm not even kidding. The reporter was there. The reporter's like, I'm here at the place and I'm at the time and I'm where I'm supposed to be and I can't find anybody. And I was like, Oh, this is this is hilarious. And 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 that was his that was I think Biden's low point. There was a, a an event that he he did where eleven people showed up. I thought that was interesting. Trump had a, had fans in Arizona that were a 17 mile long car parade that we're trying to get to his event. 
and Joe Biden won with 81 million. Like, get out of here with that. So, so again, the, the Republicans need to get clear on who they want to be the president, whether it's DeSantis or Trump, and then focus on that person. And, and I don't vote in elections, so I don't really care one way or the other, but, but, but focus on that person. And they need to do all the dirty tricks that the Democrats do. And they need to continue the Kerry Lake situation in Arizona and continue to point out the um, criminality that's been going on f with elections since, oh, I don't know, America started probably. All right. Going back to when I was a kid, then it seems that the presidencies have been dominated by the Bush and Clinton families and the extensions thereof until recent years, that is. And George H.W. Bush, youngest ever head of the CIA. So there's this integral relationship with the CIA and these crime families. George H.W. Bush voted for Hillary Clinton. So they're, you know, they're together against Trump. Have these crime families got people embedded in the CIA over the years that, you know, it doesn't matter who's president. There's this ongoing thing where these embedded operatives are actively working to take Trump down all in the present day. You know, I think you can vote in the best person in, in the world to become the president of the United States, somebody with really great intentions, right? And you get them elected because they're a good person and you think they're going to do well and they intend to do well. And all they have to do is give them the John Perkins economic hitman conversation that he gave to General Trujillos and Jaime Roldos, which is, listen, if you don't take the deal on the table, the jackals will come for you, meaning the CIA kill squads. And in his case of confessions of an economic hitman, neither of those leaders took the deal. The jackals arrived in early 1981. And in with, within three months, both of those leaders of their countries blew up in planes. So the conversation is always do as we say, or we will murder your entire family. And that is reality. It's hard to, to for people that don't like that stuff to think about it, but that's and you know that that's the reality of the situation as peter dale scott talked about the the deep state or i think maybe a, a maybe a, a more accurate description would be the permanent state it's the state that doesn't leave when the presidential administrations churn through and and so when you've got the deep state permanent state there cia nsa fbi deeply criminal gangs operating in america those the, those agencies, it, it's it, Chuck Schumer said it to Trump. They have seven ways to Sunday to make you comply. Right? The, 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 it's it's they will destroy you unless you get on board with it. So that's the reason why I'm not su su such a big voting advocate. Because regardless, I mean, you either go along with the plan or you were made to go along with the plan. And I I think that you know the 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 more devious guy George H W Bush in my opinion top 10 worst people of the 20th century i mean one of the worst human beings and uh for that guy to sort of cement it you know say oh well, we're voting for the clintons okay just so the normies out there not not your audience but they're just the general public there's no red team or blue team they're all working together they take money from one, the same one hand was one hand was voting for hillary clinton and the other one was grabbing a woman's ass yeah, yes, it was. Yeah, you know, and 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 
this is this is part of the game. It's part of the puppet show that that we get shown. So I don't I don't get too enthusiastic about elections because of that. But I I, I must confess though that that when Trump came along, he made the mainstream media very nervous. He was a bull in a china shop. You know, he was liable to say anything and do anything. And um, but again, I go back to the 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 Newt Gingrich quote in 2017 when he said Trump is going to have a real difficult time operating in Washington, D.C. He's not part of the club. He's not a part of the secret societies. And that matters. That really matters in Washington, D.C. and with these groups. And so what you find is that their allegiance isn't to the Republicans or to the Democrats. Their allegiance is to NATO, Skull and Bones, CFR, Bilderberg, United Nations, these NGOs, these these non-governmental entities that that have the real power there. So it's all it's all just a a bit of a, a show for us. And uh, and in America, as George Carlin said, when you're born into this world, you get a ticket to the circus. When you're born in America, you get a front row seat. <laughs> Papa Chubby has got a question for you. Charlie, do you believe that Trump represents a choice that's outside of the established order? Outside to an extent. You know, I mean, he knows these people. They, they, you know, they go to their wedding, they go to the Clintons, you know, Chelsea Clinton's wedding and, you know, and the Trump kids get married and the Clintons go. And they, so they're all in this social uh, group. They're not he's not so much inside that Washington, D.C. secret society fraternity that the rest of these people are. So, again, I think that it's um, he, he's not an he's an outsider in, to Washington, D.C., but he's not an outsider to power. He understands how power works. He he understands how the laws work or don't work in his case. And and he understands how to that if you put the right people in pos position around you, you are essentially insulated, whether that be your your lawyers or, you know, if you become too big to fail, if you have if you become too big and have the goods on everybody else, they won't let you go down. That's why his attorney, Roy Cohn could blackmail J. Edgar Hoover and J. Edgar Hoover could have the goods on Roy Cohn and they have parties in the Plaza Hotel and J. Edgar Hoover shows up in a dress because he doesn't care if you know, because what are you going to do? You're going to go wrap me out? I'll blow you up. You know, it's mutually assured destruction with regard to the blackmail information. And considering how these people in Washington, D.C. behave, especially when they're behind closed doors and we understand all the entrapment operations and God knows you've written books about that. Um, they, 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 they step in it. They're not so bright. They step into these traps and get themselves caught in, in situations where the people have the goods on them. And so they're forced to perhaps make, uh, make decisions that, uh, they wouldn't normally make, but their, their, uh, decision-making skills are, are controlled by someone else. So that's, that's, that's reality in, in this world. Linda's asking when you think Trump will be arrested. <clears throat> Could you clarify for the viewers, what is he alleged to have done on this indictment? He's alleged, well, he paid off Stormy Daniels, um, which is just hilarious to me. And then, um, and I think that paid they're going after what? him. He, well, he paid her to not talk about paying her for sex. <laughs> Hold on, slow down. He paid her off to not talk about being paid for sex. Right. And okay. she talked about it 
And so they went after they they they've they've had legal battles and she was just ordered to pay Trump's um, legal fees for a previous legal battle. So but she was legal battles. It's all been over him trying to make her not speak. Yes. And Michael Avenatti was her attorney. Michael Avenatti puts the douche in fiduciary, if you ask me. And he is in prison for a long time for stealing the money uh, from her book deal that she got for writing about Trump. And When did this dalliance allegedly take place then with Stormy oh, and Trump? Oh, many years ago. Many, many, many years ago. So in the last century? Yes. Yes. Within, when did, when did, within the, the last book? 10 years. When did the book come? Oh, in the last ten years. Okay, when did the book come out? Uh, maybe three, four years ago. And then he, he filed suit after the book came out. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. And then he and 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 the money she made from the book and the book deal was brokered by her her attorney Michael Avenatti, who then stole all the money from the book, and and now is in prison for it. And he also wow. tried to blackmail Nike. And um, was found guilty of that as well. So has she been silent through the court about speaking about out about what happened with him? I think she. I think she has said everything there is to say about him. What seems like, <laughs> like, like, like there is. So was it a poor no, performance that evening or something? Why does he want us to shut up? <laughs> I mean, maybe she. She did say she did describe uh, him as having a uh, mushroom dick. So, so that, so, you know, listen, I think Adderall will do that to you. <laughs> so, so uh, look, there's no sense diffusing a grenade after it's already gone off. Right. So, so I don't understand what the problem is here. <laughs> and now, and now this is being dredged up by the opposition that he made a payment to her. Yeah. Yeah. But, well, that a but, crime? but, but Michael that Cohen a crime? made the payment. Michael Cohen, his attorney, made the payment to her. How's, and what he's saying is, he's saying, I didn't pay her. Michael Cohen paid her. And they said, yeah, but you, you, you know, you authorized it and you, and you hit it on your taxes and everything. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't make the payment. So what so, specific crime has occurred? I think the crime, it, well, I, I don't know all of them. There's 34 counts against him. That's the thing oh, that I, I think. Over this one payment? Oh, over the taxes and, and, and everything re, re, relating to that. I think that's what has everybody. And listen, let me, full disclosure, I'm no legal scholar. I'm not, <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm not in, I'm not at the courtroom. I'm not studying this stuff as detailed as, as others are. But But when you have that many counts against you, it sends the message to the general public that is has 15 minutes to get their news. Oh, he must have done a ton wrong. But the reality is that a lot of those things will get dismissed, as you know. I mean, these guys are they're they're, they're throwing everything against the wall to see what sticks. And that's a bad strategy with Trump because he'll spin all of those all those uh, charges being dismissed as being victories. You know, and, and even if he loses, he'll claim victory. That's a Roy Cohn uh, strategy. Even when you lose, just declare victory and be loud about it and 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 say that you won even if you lost because a lot of people will believe that you won. So, he's going to claim victory in this anyway, either way, unless he winds up in prison. And then he'll say, "Well, it could have been worse." And he'll claim victory there too. So, <laughs> You've got, we've got 10 minutes left for questions for Charlie on the Trump situation. And the first one is from 
Um, I'm just going to read the question, actually. Um, if a new president can assassinate all deep state leaders, can kill them before they kill him, why doesn't Trump do that? Um, it's not that easy, is it? I don't. Yeah, I don't think it. They, I mean, they don't really have a big. They don't really have a big meeting where they all go to, where you can get. Well, I guess Davos would be a nice start, but uh, um, or Bilderberg. But this is this is this is just how the system is set up. It's set up to to not allow these people. I don't look. The, the The power doesn't reside with the president. The president has just sort of symbolic power. I, I the president has, you know. It, it it's a show so he can do some things he can let some people out of prison if he wants and 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 do like the, the minor things but but when you when you when it's a decision to go to war or something like that there's a massive amount of pressure that comes from the intelligence agencies and the lobbyists the big businesses that run that actually run the the united states and, you know, it, listen, if it was as easy as just wiping out, replacing all the heads of all of the FBI, he, I mean, they should do that anyway. You come in and the first thing I would do if I were Trump would be fire, it, you know, 10,000 people out of Washington, D.C. Just just a massive bloodletting of figuratively uh, of of all of the heads of the I did. I disband the FBI immediately. I just would. That'd be my first thing I would do. I just said it will no longer exist. And I would fire everybody involved. The, the FBI is the largest domestic terrorist organization operating inside America by a long stretch. And they have been for a, for many decades and they need to be. And I think that the the average person out there got a glimpse of some of that over the last few years because they despise Trump so much because he just he's so difficult for them to deal with. And so they've decided to kind of out themselves as being this real terrorist op that they are by doing things like weaponizing subpoenas and going after people kicking in their doors showing up in the middle of the night to uh you know do show trials and bringing cnn along with you and things like that i mean that this this is not what you do if you're an actual law enforcement agency the fbi stopped being a law enforcement agency three <laughs> seconds after it was created we're gonna ask some funny questions here charlie one is when's trump gonna be paying off Nicki minaj which does raise a point actually are there others out there that could you know be in the same situation as stormy oh i would imagine i mean my guess i i don't, I don't have any particular knowledge about that there was karen mcdougall who was a playboy playmate that happened like in 2000 you know but he you know he listen he just goes with the rumsfeld mistakes were made you know we don't want to live in the past we're charting a course forward and and that's all you have to do i mean nobody nobody cares that much nobody should really care all that much it's his personal life he's just, he's just, he it's not like he started being a scumbag when he became the president he's been not paying his his contractors as a developer since the 80s i mean there are thousands uh, there have been thousands and thousands and thousands of lawsuits filed against donald trump over the years for business dealings and whatnot so the, the he is this guy lives in a courtroom He's not afraid of this. This isn't gonna. This isn't gonna take him down. I don't think. Linda wants to know if the stormy thing is a smokescreen distraction. Oh, well, of course, of course. I mean, I mean, let's focus on Trump, but let's not focus on the fact that Jen Stoltenberg just announced this morning that uh, NATO wants Ukraine to join. 
I mean, distraction, distraction, distraction. Americans are easily distracted with things like that. And while they're, you know, and if you're focused on Trump and you're, you've only got so much energy to battle with your friends and neighbors on social media about Trump, then you can't be discussing how inflation is through the roof and how the banks are about to collapse and how Joe Biden can't form a coherent sentence and how his <laughs> polls are down low and how one in 50 kids in Chicago knows how to is, is, uh, proficient in reading and writing you know all these things that we should really actually be focusing on the fact that the the rail system in the united states is completely inadequate and trains are are f falling off the tracks left right and center all of these things should be a priority instead the lead story of the news is hate donald trump more hate him more hate him more because it serves a, a couple of purposes first it's great for ratings for the people that already currently hate him because they get to obsess about how terrible he is, you know, and the walls are closing in finally. And, and, and Keith Olbermann can go nuts and talk about how, how, how this is going to be the day that democracy rises from the ashes and things like that. All that stuff is a distraction. Of course it's a distraction. Michelle wants to know if this stormy situation was originally set into play as a honey trap. Well, I don't know. I don't know if this one particular in particular was, but I mean, it's it's a, a well-used tactic. You know, I, I think that this is um, this happens more than a lot of people would like to admit. It happened. It, you don't have to be the president to fall into a honey trap either. So um, maybe, maybe, maybe not. But but either way, if you even if you're just some somebody that what, had no intention of being involved in this. You could find yourself with a sellable story to the tabloids if you're some some lady that ran into Donald Trump late night at Mar-a-Lago and his wife was out of town and you guys hooked up in the bathroom and everything. That's a story worth telling for a couple hundred thousand dollars to TMZ or the National Enquirer or something like that. So it doesn't even have to be intentional. Every interaction Trump has is a potential trap for him, in my opinion. Dub wants to know, Charlie, do you believe that JFK was the most honest POTUS until 63 and since yeah i mean and i don't think by any stretch he was perfect you can't be his father was like a bootlegger you know what i mean like you come out through these institutions and you you get groomed and you sort of get put in a position of power but but jfk made made very powerful people uncomfortable the CIA, um, Israel, you know, a lot of lobbying groups, the military industrial complex, all the most dangerous people he that, that are used to getting their way or telling the president how it's going to be. He said, we're not doing it your way. We're going to do it a different way. And um, and I think that that uh, requires a ton of guts. And I think that, uh, you know, you know what the possibilities are. You know, you he, I don't think he was surprised that there were people out there trying to get him. And, um, but I think that, I think that America changed forever after that day. What little, I mean, I think that just the response that the average person had, that was before the media was really weaponized against the American public. It was a time when there was a lot of optimism and, and that it seemed like it died on that day that the American optimism and it was replaced by some really devious people that got us into wars that we, we should have never been involved in. And, and Kennedy didn't want that. So I, 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 th I think he might've been the last good guy. There certainly, ha I'll tell you what, there certainly haven't been any good guys after him that I'm hundred percent positive about. 
maybe the closest guy would be Jimmy Carter. And the only reason why he'd be considered to be a good guy is that he didn't start any more wars. But but short of that, no, you 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 can't be a good guy and be the United States president. It's just impossible. Just just short answers on these ones, then Charlie. We've got two minutes left. Okay. Steve wants to know: Do you think Melania will leave him? No. No. Gene, Man, what, what's the point? He's already she's she's already been humiliated by him. She... Jane wants to know if you think Trump is a narcissist. Oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, for sure, a narcissist. But but that but that can be funny. It can be funny to watch sometimes. It's you great know? viewing, it, isn't it? That, those it, it is yeah. made for television mm-hmm. entertainment right there. But yeah, for, for sure. I mean, I'm no psychologist, but but full-blown narcissistic personality disorder. Um, let's see what we've got. We're about to run out of time. Charlie, do you want to tell the viewers where they can find you and support you and follow you? Yes. Uh, Macroaggressions podcast goes out twice a week. I just put a new episode out today called A Wolf in Sheep's Clothing which talks about the Fabian Socialist Society and what their role is in shaping the democratic socialists like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and how their logo is literally a wolf in sheep's clothing on their shield. It's it's not like they're trying to hide anything there. But uh, macroaggressions in audio format everywhere. In video format, just go to Rockfin and find it. You can go to the website, theoctopusofglobalcontrol.com. You can follow me on Twitter at macroaggression. And if you are so inclined, you can support my work by buying books uh, over at Amazon. Just search my name and you'll find them. Thanks, Sean, for having me back on. Always made me so happy to see you, Charlie. Thank you, brother, for coming on and take Thank care. You. Please support Charlie's work, everybody. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. All right, we're going to bring in Connor Powell and Stephen Knight, but before we do so, let me do a quick poll on the viewers. Put a one in the chat if you think Trump's indictment and arrest will enhance his prospects of becoming the president it will do him a favor the martyr factor put a two in the chat if you think his indictment and possible arrest will harm his reputation and we will see what comes in on those Stephen knight is going to be coming in now do you think trump's arrest is going to enhance his reputation it's tough. He's, he's fireproof, isn't it? Doesn't doesn't appear anything can bring him down. So I I can't see this harming him with his base. I suppose that it pretty much depends on the verdict. Actually, nearly all ones. Isn't it's like ninety eight percent ones. All right, I'm going to hand you over to Connor. Connor, welcome to Atwood and Leash. How are you doing, sir? Good. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure entirely. Uh, maybe you can just tell our viewers and listeners uh, what it is you do. How do you describe your work? Yeah, I'm a journalist. Um, you know, professionally, I've worked uh, all around the world covering conflicts, wars, politics. Um, here in the United States, I've covered uh, civil unrest. I've covered politics, business, a little of everything. I've been doing podcasts the last couple of years and have done different types of podcasts. I did a political history podcast called uh, Long Shot several years ago, which was all about presidential losers. Um, I also did um, a one about um, FIFA called uh, The Lords of Soccer, which is all about the history of corruption within um, a professional. Sorry, Connor, I have to correct you there. It's football. <laughs> of course it is. Of course it is. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, and I've done a little bit of uh, some other podcasts and true crime is something that uh, is obviously very popular in 
what I've been working on the last uh, year or so has been this podcast called Death Island, which is all about this remote, beautiful island in Thailand called Koh Tao. And uh, I mean, it's, it's as beautiful an island as they come in the world. It's some of the best scuba diving in the world. It's also a place, unfortunately, that uh, has a really long track record of deaths. Some of them are clear-cut murders. Some of them are mysterious, unexplained. Some of them are accidents. Um, but the one thing that is sort of universal across 20 years, 25 years now, is that uh, the Thai authorities almost always blame the tourists, the visitors, um, and there's almost never a proper investigation done into the deaths, um, no matter who they are or where they happen. And there are some common themes about Thai locals who maybe look the other way, maybe are involved in some of these deaths. And so it's, it's a pretty shocking story about just how pervasive the violence is on this beautiful island paradise. Well, so I've never, I've never been to Southeast Asia, isn't it? In Thailand, it's mm -hmm. uh, an island. I've never been myself, but I have, I do know of it. And it's, it's a beautiful place, very idyllic, a huge footfall in terms of tourism, uh, especially from the West, I believe. Yeah. So what, what would people expect to see? What do people genuinely, uh, generally do when they visit this island? Well, I mean, listen, uh, Thailand is a beautiful place. It's, uh, it's obviously a, a great place for backpackers and young people to go because the costs are ridiculous and the, the bang for your buck are probably as good as anywhere in the world. The food's fantastic. The people are incredibly nice. There's beautiful beaches. There's a ton of outdoor places. And, and Koh Tao is, is all of that. I mean, in fact, it probably has some of the best beaches in the world. It easily has some of the best scuba diving in the world. Um, and... People go there. Typically, they go there after going to some of the bigger partier islands. Uh, you get a lot of people go to Koh Samui, Copenhagen, some of those areas around there that are the you know the half moon parties, the sort of hardcore raves and stuff. Koh Tao has a little bit of that, but in all honesty, Koh Tao is not a party place like it is in comparison to some of these others. Um, it is known primarily as a scuba diving place. It's the type of place you go for a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of days as you're backpacking around Thailand maybe to lay low a little bit. And it, it just, the main beach is this uh, fantastic beach called uh, Sari Beach. It's mostly run by one family, the Tavichian family. And they're one of the sort of three or four, maybe five families that run this island. And there's only about a thousand people that live permanently on this island. And up until I think the 1950s or 60s, the island of Koh Tao was uninhabited. It was a prison for a little while. It was a place where smugglers... Um, would use part of the island to sort of, uh, you know, um, resupply themselves to to dock, to to move. I mean, it has sort of a pirate prison history that's really interesting. Um, and because it was so remote in the sort of Thai island chains, it, it was untouched for a lot of years. And it's only really been the last 20, maybe 30 years that there's been a permanent group of people living there and inviting tourism, people coming to visit. And in the 1990s is when it really exploded um, as a place for scuba diving. And, and one of the guys who built it was a guy named Mr. Ban, who's, whose scuba diving family still runs the scuba diving shop, Mr. Ban Scuba Diving. And it's one of the biggest scuba diving um, companies in the world because that's how good the diving is. That's how good um, the area is. That's just how big the dive culture is there. And he was gunned down um, about 23 years ago in the middle of the street. 
and allegedly it was over a gambling debt. It's hard to know exactly sure, but like it was one of those things that people saw him get gunned down in the street um, by another guy. And they just sort of went looked the other way and said, okay, you know, don't let the good times stop on this Island. Would it be fair to say then that this particular Island's economy um, overtly relies on the tourism industry? Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, Thailand relies on the tourism yeah. industry and, and, and Koh Tao particularly, and it's been hit hard during COVID. I mean, Thailand really shut down um, in the last couple of years. But, you, you know, that's kind of the excuse when you talk to people who know the region, who know the business of Koh Tao. They say, well, the Thais don't want any of these deaths to be investigated. They don't want anything that's going to ruin their reputation in terms of tourism. So, you know, there's a woman who um, the Thais say she committed suicide. Her family doesn't believe that she committed suicide. Her friends don't believe she committed suicide. And she was running away from a cult she had joined and lived in for several years on another island. She stopped off on Koh Tao. Her first bungalow on Koh Tao burns, catches fire. She checks into another bungalow hotel on the other side of the island and checks in under an assumed name. And several weeks later, she's found dead in the jungles of Koh Tao being half eaten by lizards and the Koh Tao police, the, the Thai police immediately rule her uh, death, a suicide. Her family says, no, there's more to this. There was a, a gasoline canister by her feet. There was blue nylon rope. There was towels or um, not towels, but there's uh, t-shirts wrapped around her. All these things that say maybe not quite a suicide. Now she had a history of mental issues. She was fleeing a cult. So like there are things that you could say, yeah, it's definitely, it could have been a suicide, but there are also things at the, at her death scene that say, no, hold on, let's slow down. And the ties have ruled her death a suicide, uh, despite all these other sort of questions. And that's pretty indicative of what we see all out of all the investigations. It's, it's always blamed on the, the, the visitor, the tourist, the Westerner, the expat who's living there or traveling there as opposed to maybe there's something else going on. And the most famous case of uh, murder on Kotao is the Hannah Witheridge and David Miller, which happened uh, six, seven, eight years ago now. Um, yeah, they were a British couple, wasn't they? Yeah, well, they weren't even a couple. They met um, uh, traveling. They were hanging out. They went off to walk uh, on the beach around 1 a.m. Um, and they're found sometime between 5 a.m. and 6 a.m., literally bludgeoned raped and just beaten to death and the thai police initially pointed the finger at a local family that had a connection to um the sorry beach and the bar where they were last seen um they within a couple of days changed their story pulled out the police officer from thailand who has overseen that investigation and pointed the finger at this tavician family and within a couple of months um you know they've arrested some burmese kids you know, 18, 19, 20 year old uh, migrant workers who are there. They've been convicted on really dodgy evidence. And the prime minister at the time is basically blaming Hannah Witheridge for being too attractive and it's not a safe place. And he goes out and says that like, you know, if you're wearing bikinis and, you know, if kids are out here doing drugs and partying, well, of course our islands and our beaches aren't safe. And so there's this entire effort to always blame somebody other than a Thai person for these deaths. And it's not unique to Koh Tao, but it's, it's way more pronounced on this island. 
Did you head out there yourself to do any investigating? I haven't. I mean, we we did most of this reporting during COVID. Uh, right. I would love to have. Uh, I spoke to a lot of people who lived on the island, live on the island, live in the area. Um, I spoke to family members who dealt with police and stuff like that. So, you know, this is one of those things that if this was a TV show, we probably would have been on the island. But podcasts, um, investigations, the budgets are slightly different. But you know, I mean, I've, I've reported from war zones. I've reported from all around the world. You, you can do a lot over Skype. You can do a lot of in, interviewing of people um, in this day and age uh, remotely. So I would love to have seen it, but I'm not sure I would have gotten very deep in the investigation there because we talked to other journalists who've been there. Um, Jonathan Samuels from Sky News covered Hannah and David's deaths. And he talked about being harassed and um, other journalists being chased off. And people, we talked to multiple journalists who had been threatened uh, while we're reporting there. So, you know, we focused a lot on the families who were part of the investigations, who were getting information, uh, whether it be the autopsy from Thai officials on Koh Tao or, um, or from the neighboring larger islands where they do most of the autopsies. And we talked to people who had autopsies done in Bangkok or in the UK and how they didn't quite jive with what the Thai officials had told them in terms of the cause of death. Um, and, you know, so it, it's one of those things I would love to have been there on the ground. Um, but just with between COVID and, uh, you know, reporting this out, it wasn't something that was just doable. OK, yeah. So there's been numerous instances of autopsies uh, being carried out at a later date and things that have been flagged that haven't been picked up by the authorities on the island. And it, to your mind, I mean, it, your gut instincts, is this indicative of more of a, a cover up, you know, protectionist attitude or perhaps more towards sort of systemic incompetence uh, in terms of the structure they have there and the means uh, and budget, things like that? Yeah. So I want to address one thing, because I think a lot of people say that there's this like Kotal hoax, that there's nothing to see here. It's all just, you know, Internet speculation. Well, the fact of the matter is we document there's about 20 people who have died in Kotal on this island in about the last 20 years. Most of their deaths are extremely mysterious and suspicious. And there is evidence on both sides to point to accident or something more than an accident, something particularly murder. Um, and what we see is that it's not a hoax. There are people who have died there. There are family members who have lost family members and that the, the people who say that there's like a death cult or a serial killer, those are the people who are sort of trying to deflect into, you know, they're not, they're straw man arguments, essentially. What I think and what we document in, in this podcast, Death Island, is that in an effort to keep tourism alive and to keep tourists and visitors coming to Koh Tao and really all of Thailand, the Thai government, Thai officials will do anything to, to basically label any death, either an accident or a suicide. So that there's no culpability. There's no way anyone on in Thailand can be sort of blamed for it. They, you know, they don't want any damage to the Thai reputation there. And the other thing you have on Koh Tao, which is that it's become a massive uh, visitor destination, but the infrastructure there just isn't particularly strong. Um, you know, they don't have a full functioning hospital. It's a very rickety little uh, sort of hospital that they have there. At the time of Hannah and David's death, there were only six police officers with no real training. They were all connected. They were locals who were connected to the sort of ruling families on the island. Um, and what you just don't have there is the infrastructure to support the massive amount of growth 
that has come about the last 20 years with tourists and visitors there. And as a result, these two things combine where you don't have infrastructure and you don't have um, a, a desire to sort of get to the bottom, get to the truth of these deaths. They collide and basically you get an atmosphere where family members who lose loved ones in Kotal are always left with a huge amount of questions about how their loved ones died. For sure, yeah. So I suppose just kind of playing devil's advocate a little bit here. So we, we're saying these there's been something like 20 deaths over a span, I think you said 20 years? About, yeah. Uh, about 20 years. And they range from anything to clear and blatant homicide to uh, suspected suicide to perhaps misadventure, things like that. In that context, people traveling to a foreign place, they may say something like 20 deaths in 20 years isn't really significant statistically when you place it in the right. context of other destinations. Is that something that you would address at all? Yeah. And I, I'm not saying there's only 20 deaths in 20 years, right? So we're focusing on 20 deaths that are, that have a verifiable information that would lead somebody to say that the conclusion of Thai authorities is questionable, right? So, right. Um, you know, the other thing is it's nearly impossible to find out how many people have been, have died there or, um, you know, in terms of the total numbers and stuff like that. It's just not something Thai authorities are, are handing out. But when you go through international newspapers and death notices, it's not hard to find a scuba diver in Argentina, uh, a Belgian woman, uh, the British couple or the British pair that were there. You find these death notices from Koh Tao and they all have essentially the same theme, which is somebody dies in Koh Tao. Thai authorities immediately label it as uh, uh, something that was a suicide or the cause of death was a result of what the person was doing. And immediately the bodies are cremated um, or buried or sent home and with almost no real autopsies done to get to the bottom of this. So, yeah, I mean, I think I, I'm not trying to say there's only been 20 deaths and that's the only deaths we should focus on. These are the, the 20 or so deaths that we looked at are all extremely suspicious and have serious questions about them. Um, and, you know, backpackers do, sometimes they do things that, you know, they, they shouldn't do. They use drugs. Um, tourists use drugs. They party, they drink. Uh, I, I'm not saying that that is uncommon or unique to Kotal. I, what I'm saying is that in Kotal, you have a culture that really is exemplified by Hannah and David's death, but there's a whole bunch of other deaths as well, where there's just serious questions about how these people die and investigators on the Island or in the region do everything they can to stifle an investigation. Okay. So we've had a, a question from the chat from Gene Thornton. Uh, they've asked, has, have you been in touch with Susan Buchanan who wrote a book on this Island and its murders? I have. Yeah. And, and she's one of the people we interview. She lived on Kotal for many years. Um, she'll tell you that she knows everyone of the so-called Kotal mafia personally. Um, she was married to a local Thai person. She still owns property on Kotal. She was not living on Kotal when Hannah and David were killed, but she was running um, essentially an expat newspaper on, I believe, Kosamui at the time. And so she documented a lot of this stuff and she wrote a book. Um and she has been an advocate for the two Burmese, um, I call them boys, but they were, they're young men now who were convicted of killing Hannah and David. Um, and the DNA evidence on that is there's some real serious questions about the 
chain of custody of the evidence and things like that. Um, and she's been an advocate for them. Um, and I've talked to her, but you know, we don't just talk to her. Um, like I said, I, I'm a professional journalist. I've been a trained journalist for 20 years. I was in Afghanistan for four years covering the war there. I was in Jerusalem for six years. I've been in and out of places like Libya and stuff like that. Like we do a thorough investigation talking to people both on the record, off the record. Um, and Sue does a fantastic job covering those deaths that she writes about in her book. Um, but there's more deaths than just what she even uh, talks about in her own book as well. Um, and we, we found some people who had never spoken before publicly on the record um, about some of these deaths and the way that the Thai government treated them, uh, the families and, and things like that in terms of the investigation. So Susan was a fantastic resource. Um, and I would encourage people to read her book if they want to know more. I think if you really want to know about Kotal, both her book and, and our podcast series, Death Island, really give you a, a great glimpse. And, you know, I, I our goal is not to... Um, make Thailand look bad. But I think, you know, visitors to this place, and there are still thousands of visitors who go all the time, um, you know, they really need to know what they're walking into there. And, uh, you know, hopefully at the end of the day, we, we, we seek to get some justice for the families, some answers for the families. But also, there's no reason on a place like Koh Tao that is so small and makes so much money that basic safety policing shouldn't be a part of the infrastructure there. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. And you mentioned the mafia there. And I was just wondering, um, how extensive is that problem? Uh, how do the how do, how does the mafia operate on the island? Yeah, so this is one of those words that's really tough to define. I'm not sure it is the mafia like we are thinking with the Italian or maybe the Hong Kong mafia, right? Like, I don't think it's quite that, you know, I'm, I'm sure that I'm not sure that they're have secret um, ceremonies to initiate people on the island of Kotal, right? So I don't want to pretend that it is, but um, we, when you talk to people, what they mean by the ta- the Kotal mafia, they mean the three, four, sometimes people say five families that own all of the land there that are essentially run the island, that make the decisions. And they refer to them as the mafia because of their influence over the police and their influence over lo- local governance, and um, it's not a secret mafia. I don't think even the families would acknowledge that like they are in the same group. I think some of them actually have some very serious issues with each other. Um, but they operate like a mafia. They operate like an organization that makes decisions that are maybe not in the best interest of the community, but are that are in the best interest of their own personal organizations. Okay, so uh, Baz the Second has asked, well, as noted, there are Dutch reporters who got killed there too. Is that something you're aware of? Dutch reporters, I'm not 100% sure about. It's not to say, I mean, we, uh, we are literally uncovering things um, in the last couple of days since the first episode uh, launched last week. Um, I would love to know if somebody can drop the names in the comment section on the spot on this you know, afterwards, I'll definitely check it out and we'll follow up on it. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the nationalities, I mean, there was a Russian woman who went missing. There was an Argentinian uh, female scuba diver who died. Um, there were two Thai Indian um, locals who owned several rich hotels that died just about a year and a half ago. Um, they died while swimming in a pool on Koh Tao, And the police said it was because of his diabetes and hypertension. Now, I'm no expert, but like maybe one person dies of diabetes or hypertension in a swimming pool, but two people strikes me as not a particularly 
sound logic for the determination of death of these two people. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, my hunch is my hunch is that there was probably an issue with uh, the pool being electrified um, because it hadn't been used in so long because of COVID, and and that could have been a problem. Maybe there was a chemical in there that caused um, some issue. But two people dying of one person's diabetes um, or hypertension is just not a legitimate explanation by police, and that's the type of answer you get all the time. Well, we, we mean we you established or you 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 um, informed us that the island heavily relies on the tourism industry in terms of its economy. It can't function without that. So just from like a mercenary perspective, a business perspective, it, this is a, a PR disaster for the island. Yeah. The more high profile cases of deaths that are somewhat mysterious or you know not fully explained. And I believe they have the th- the authorities on the island have made promises to make it safer for tourists. Yeah. Have you seen that manifest in any way? Have there been any changes that you're aware of? No, and, and Kotal falls under, I believe it's the Copenhagen Police District. Um, if I it's either Copenhagen or Kosamui, but it, Kotal is very tiny, right? So it, it actually reports into a much larger district. Um, and you have similar issues, um, you know, with tourist uh, visitors dying uh, on other islands and stuff. Again, not out of the usual, but I think what's what's remarkable about Kotal are the excuses that are given for the deaths. And, and I think one of the other things that's really important to understand about Kotal and how it fits into Thailand is when Hannah and David were murdered on Kotal, it was right after the military took control of the country. Um, I think that they died in uh, mid-September. The coup was in May. And so the military government was very much trying to reassure the world that like they're in charge. They got things, things under control. And there are a whole bunch of deaths around this period of time. Um, within about 18 months, you've got about five or six deaths that take place on Koh Tao. And so there's a huge effort by the, the, the military leaders in Bangkok to basically help the Koh Tao leaders just sweep this under the rug because the, the military coup damaged Thailand's reputation internationally around that time. And they were desperate to try to re-legitimize themselves in the eyes of the world. And the last thing they wanted was Sky News, the New York Times, the BBC, coming to Kotal and basically saying, oh, we've got a murder here and, and they don't have an explanation. Um, and so that was bad, not only for Kotal, but it was bad for the rulers, the leaders in Bangkok as well. Do you have any sort of um, reluctance or any feelings about titling your your podcast Dead Island? Because it, it does, you know, reinforce this idea that it's a very unsafe place to travel to. Yeah, I mean, um, that's a name that had been given to the island uh, by people on the Internet. It's been referred to in newspapers. It's been referred to um, by reporters for a lot of years now. Um, So, you know, unfortunately, that's its reputation. I'm not labeling a reputation. And I think one of the things that's really interesting is if you talk to an American, um, almost nobody's heard of this case. But as soon as I said Hannah and David, Almost every British person, um, and really most Europeans, have a sense of, oh, Kotel. Oh, I remember that island, right? But for Americans, there's just no concept because it's not as much a spot that Americans go to travel. Uh, it's very much a British and European travel destination. Um, it's not to say Americans don't go there and Canadians don't go there. But, um, you know, the, the Death Island name is something that is unfortunately, a, it's a nickname that's been given to Kotel. Um you know, really for the last 15 years or so. 
So to those people out there who are propping this idea of a serial killer uh, responsible, how, how likely do you think that is? Is that something you think you could probably dismiss, dismiss out? No, no. And, and, and listen, I, I, I don't think there is sort of one or two people who are responsible for these deaths. You know, there was a there was one person who died snorkeling. And if I'm looking at it in the abstract away from Kotal, you would say it was a horrible accident gone wrong. But the company that um, was running the scuba diving tour, or sorry, the snorkeling tour, paid no price. There was no penalties. We were told that the, the, the person who was leading the snorkeling tour uh, didn't even lose his job. And so, you know, I think a lot of the issues on Kotal have to do with governance, have to do with a lack of infrastructure, a lack of actual police authority, um, uh, and, and a real effort effort by the locals to just turn the page, move on, nothing to see here. And this is why earlier I men mentioned Mr. Ban, the guy who founded the sort of scuba diving industry there was, he was murdered in broad daylight on the street. Now somebody was arrested and convicted of his crime, but we talked to multiple people who lived on the island there about 99, 2000, and they all said literally nothing changed when they saw this guy murdered in the street. And the attitude was, we're in paradise. Like, let's just keep the good times going. And that, unfortunately, is true for the, a lot of the expats who live there and also for the Thais who lived on the island as well. And so, yeah, there's no serial killer. I'm not going to try to pretend uh, that there's one or two or a death cult that's sort of behind all of these deaths. I mean, that's just crazy talk. Uh, and I don't know anyone who in good faith makes that argument. But that said, you know, what we detail in Death Island, um, you know, over the course of 10, 12 episodes is, there are some very strange deaths uh, and there is a very much a culture of refusing to investigate these deaths. So let's say, for instance, now uh, I, I, a number of young Americans that you know or you happen to run into have no concept of this island, know nothing about it, but they're telling you they're going to paradise and they're going to this island. You've got this amazing vacation planned, knowing what you know. Do you, what do you say to them? Do you try and talk them out of it? Do you feel they would be unsafe to do so? <laughs> well, I'm not always sure I'm the best person to give advice. I, you know, listen, I moved to <laughs> Afghanistan uh, in 2009 as a freelance reporter uh, right at wow. the height of the war. So like, I'm not sure I'm the <laughs> best person to listen to. Um, I, I've made some questionable moves in my life. Uh, you know, I regularly went out of war zones professionally and stuff. So, uh, you know, what I would say is like, just understand there is this history on Kotal. Um, and there are other places, uh, to spend your money. Um, and maybe the best way to clean up Kotao is for tourists not to go there until something changes. Um, and I wouldn't even tell people not to go to Thailand. I, I think Thailand's a wonderful country. Um, but I think if you are going to go to Kotao, you should at least have this basic understanding of the history there. Um, and you know, maybe that should play into it. There are fantastic diving spots all over, uh, Thailand. And particularly in the, the, I think it's the Bay of Thailand area where Koh Tao is. And, you know, maybe it's, if you're going to make a decision, you should probably at least have the information about the history of this island. Yeah, I do. Yeah. When people are traveling, I, they, they would do well to know the local area as well as possible and, and take precautions to keep themselves and, and people they care about as safe as possible. But Connor, I really appreciate speaking to you about this. Maybe you could just tell people uh, where they can find your uh, podcast on this and any other writing that may be of interest. Sure. The, the podcast is called Death Island. It's uh, with iHeartRadio is our um, executive producers. 
Um, they have a iHeart uh, True Crime Plus subscription um, where you can get episodes early there. Um, so we just released our second episode today that's released to the general public. You can get it on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, really anywhere where you're going to listen to podcasts, even places like Good, uh, Good Pods as well. And so, yeah, anywhere where you listen to podcasts, it's available. Uh, if you want to get episodes early and some behind-the-scenes content, um, iHeart has this True Crime Plus subscription service uh, that uh, has a lot of behind-the-scenes coverage. But at the end of the day, it's available pretty much anywhere you're going to listen to podcasts. Wonderful. And I believe Connor's social network feeds have just been dropped into the chat there for people to send him some uh, lovely feedback. But uh, Connor, thank you very much for joining me. This has flown by. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me and for talking about Kotal. Thank you. Fascinating. Wow. Definitely. I'm, I'm wondering sure if there is. I might be off my holiday destination, you know. <laughs> might, be off the, might be off the list. I wonder if the serpent has inspired people or a cult to do copycat killings. Hmm. <laughs> I do not know. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, I think it's this horrible thing as well about people traveling as well. And is it, isn't it getting inebriated, being in unfamiliar situations and, you know, in, in an unfamiliar environment rather and making a mistake either culturally or wandering off in the wrong direction or trusting the wrong person. And it's these kind of things happen. Well, that was it. The serpent, he would get the backpackers, him and his wife or crime partner would get the backpackers and, like put them up and befriend them and they'd be the part of this like kind of hippie community and then over time he'd start drugging them and make them ill or drug them and just take them out and drown them and take all the travelers checks and their ids and and everything and it was they were just young people that he killed and it's a true based on a true story as well and um he he did he did go on the run he went back in and i think he might be back out again now i'm not sure but cold, so cold what he did to these Psychotic. Mostly, yeah, to these people. Yeah. Lovely. Yeah, I think I'll stick to Blackpool. <laughs> <laughs> hey Campbell, thanks for joining us on Atwood Unleashed. How are you doing? Good. Hey Steven, it's great to be here. How are you doing? Wonderful. Thank you very much for asking. It's good. Um maybe you could just start by letting our listeners and um viewers know what it is you do exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my name is Campbell Marrera. I'm a Canadian skeptic. I co-host and co-founded the Invisible Night School, a, a weekly live YouTube show podcast. And we talk about paranormal subjects, uh, mainly UFOs from an analytic perspective. And I'm also the creator of UAPstudy.com, where I detail my journey through the UFO subject. Wonderful. You know what? It's so lovely and refreshing to get a skeptic on about this issue i i am a self-described skeptic myself and i've, I've spoken to many a, a ufo advocate on this show and they all are firmly in the camp of um aliens or or other um sort of supernatural explanations and the strange thing about this subject for me is i'm kind of kind of disappointed it's not aliens i don't know how you feel about that you know, I uh, I agree with you in some ways. I I'm concerned about the idea of aliens arriving because of the historic precedent of you know tech, even intellectually equivalent and technologically superior uh, cultures interacting. It's never a good thing 
for the uh, the technologically, uh, you know, reduce like the lower civilization. So I have some concerns on that front, but also it would be so transformative and everything. It would be exciting. So, uh, you know, I, I have mixed feelings. Yeah, I did see that incredible documentary Independence Day once and it, <laughs> it really gave cause for concern for sure. Um, so, I mean, maybe it's worth discussing uh, a lot of what we do have because I, I used to love UFO stories. I was a big X-Files fan as a teenager and then I as I became an adult, I kind of I felt like I grew out of it a little bit and I, I developed a more, uh, you know, critical approach to these things. And it seemed for the longest time that we didn't really have anything concrete to go on. But what's been fascinating for me uh, in recent years is the declassification of some of the, you know, Pentagon footage. And what we seem to have now is some actual tangible evidence of something. Obviously, it's not logical to then, uh, you know, imply this is aliens or something else. But I'm just wondering, for instance, I, I suppose one of them was dubbed the Go Faster tape. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the one I'm uh, speaking of here. And that seemed to me a very convincing um, uh, document, uh, rather, or piece of evidence of uh, an actual UFO, something that could not have been created uh, with current technology, yet it was something physical that was being observed. And that that got me really excited. And then I saw somebody do a debunking video where they explained it away as a potential bird. And then I was I was deflated. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on what what sort of logical explanations we could have for that footage. Yes. Well, yeah, there's the uh, gimbal and go fast videos. Uh, the go fast is the one where the object appears to streak rapidly off the screen um, at the end of it. The argument goes that it could just be the locking mechanism of the uh, automated sensor system just losing lock and it actually being the uh, difference in movement and the uh, range to the object that produces that effect. Um, the thing that I always look at is uh, the most likely explanation without putting down the less probable ones. I don't really uh, engage on that side. And I find that when you come to the subject with respect and you're engaging with uh, self-identified as uh, truth seekers, uh, you know, called uh, believers or, uh, you know, uh, uh, disclosure advocates. Uh, if you come at it with respect and uh, you just sort of just treat it as a, a friendly conversation, a good faith dialogue, uh, you can make some progress. Uh, with these videos, I think that the most compelling explanation, and Mick West, we've had him on our show. Um, he's the guy who debunks a bunch of the stuff and on CNN doing that. He provides sufficient, plausible explanations for the observed features in the videos that do not require an extraordinary explanation. And when there are sufficient plausible explanations, it, it just ends up being on a balance of probabilities more likely than not than it is something prosaic. Yeah, Occam's Ways is always very useful in these scenarios, for sure. And I suppose... Like I, I sometimes find as well that if you know people who have a skeptical mindset and are very uh, interested in debunking extraordinary claims that don't have evidence can often feel like you know can often come across as sort of party poopers. It's almost like telling people Santa yeah. doesn't exist sometimes. And how how do you how do you deal with that sort of reaction when you're basically somehow in people's minds making the world slightly less magical? Yeah, well, that's a a tough one because I understand that side of it it is more exciting and interesting i actually started looking at it out of, of open interest during uh the lockdowns uh it was actually uh, president obama's uh comments which are really not anything specifically notable they just got through to me in that moment to be like wait what's going on here when he uh, gave that interview on the late late show in uh, spring 2021 and his 
he says, uh, you know, well, let me be serious for a moment here. There are objects in the skies that we don't know exactly what they are. We can't explain how they move their trajectories. They did not have an easily explainable pattern. And I didn't think to myself then, it's like, oh, Obama's uh, admitting alien UFO stuff. I was like, why would a former president encourage me to think about UFOs, especially in a time like this when I know that the national security policies of the United States discourage uh, interest in conspiracy for a variety of reasons. And uh, that's what sort of uh, launched me into this uh, subject specifically. Um, so I, I was motivated by interest and possible excitement from it being something completely radical, but I don't think we're quite there. And uh, I, I would say there's maybe a middle ground. Um, current debunking models, like what McWest does, does leave an openness where you say, I don't know. And that's quite reasonable. It's totally acceptable. I don't know what you saw. You might not have seen anything. I don't know. Historically, when you look at the UFO subject, the original skeptics and scientists getting involved, uh, like Sir Arthur C. Clarke, my position is essentially identical to the position of Arthur C. Clarke through the 50s and 60s and uh, even into the 70s. Um, it's you, you give the explanation for why it's unlikely to be the more extraordinary while providing a sufficient plausible explanation at the same time to uh, at least alleviate that tension because the human mind does want answers and if you leave it without any answer then what i've seen especially when we're we engage directly with the ufo twitter sub community and what i see is that when answers aren't given even uh, potential uh, based on good evidence that people will move towards somebody giving any answer so yeah, that's a good answer, and I was just wondering as well in terms of the this footage that we these new you know declassified pieces of video we've seen. Uh, there's an extra element here that they are actually corroborated with eyewitness testimonies of people well respected within the military. Uh, and how do we talk about what is essentially anecdotal evidence, uh, really? Uh, without implying that these people are simply lying because a lot of their accounts are very specific and detailed in what they have, have seen. And I've, I've noticed the, you know, they're very careful not to say, you know, it's aliens or whatever. They seem to be quite neutral on that aspect of it. But what they are describing is a, as a physical vehicle with propulsion, you know, metallic, large moves, unlike anything else. Uh, and this kind of corroborates some of the video footage we have. How do we, how do we explain what's going on here with military personnel giving eyewitness testimony of this kind? Well, that's a good question. You have to dive into a variety of different subjects. Uh, human psychology is clearly one of them. Uh, we have many instances in the past of things being observed, sometimes by large groups of people, with uh, what would seem to be shared perceptions of something real and physical. Uh, one example that I was actually just reading the other day was a letter written in the, uh, I believe it was in the 1700s, by a, uh, a natural philosopher, what would become a scientist, talking about how the number of eyewitness reports from sailors about a specific kind of sea monster with features that we know now don't exist. It's, he's arguing, Occam's razor, that given the number of independent uh, witness observations, it's likely that there is something with these features. So... You, people can see a lot of different things and then come together and it can uh, be very different from what's uh, observed. Like uh, Alex Dietrich was one of the uh, fighter pilots involved in the uh, famous uh, Tic Tac incident. Uh, and uh, Fravor was the uh, commander who went down and closer. She was flying above doing an overwatch. And her observation, when she went back to the carrier, she thought that she had seen a missile test and she was upset that 
they had been got directed towards an active missile test. So, you know, and that's one of the two big witnesses on the uh, the feature there on a, was a PBS or whatever that was the big one. So, you know, you, you can see how things when you get into the details, they can kind of like continuously recede. And, uh, you know, it, it typically ends up that way. Yeah. And um, in terms of, you know, eyewitness testimony, things like that, I mean, it, it adds an extra dimension for me. And this is where I, I people lose me very quickly when they imply some sort of government complicity or a cover up, because to my mind, governments in general are fairly incompetent. <laughs> and to cover up something of this size would be almost impossible, especially considering it probably would have to be a multinational thing across borders to do. I mean, did you how, how much stock do you put in these kind of conspiracies that not only have aliens visited us, but the government are aware of it and the government are act actively engaging in some sort of cover up? Yes, well, that's an you have to get into the the details of it my undergraduate was in philosophy so you're going to see that i get into the exact meaning of the words sometimes more so than uh, maybe some people would like but so the cover-up element we know that governments engage in cover-ups all the time typically for valid national security reasons sometimes not valid and they get discovered and then uh, investigated and things like that so for like the roswell uh crash we had a real uh cover-up that was of a listening system being used uh, in secret uh, to pick up the sound waves from nuclear detonation tests in uh, Soviet Union. And that's what actually crashed, uh, according to the uh, investigation in the 90s and the uh, you know, Air Force Army records. Uh, so they were actually doing a cover-up for many decades on that. Um, you know, but that's valid national security reasons. Now, when it comes to UAP, that's one of the most extraordinary things I've actually found in my uh, research uh, as a skeptic is that there is a, uh, a report from the United Kingdom government that was completed in 2000 and declassified in 2006 that is the definitive internal uh, intelligence community in the United Kingdom's report on the subject of UAP. And it led to the closure of their UAP programs as a result of that study, uh, it's called Unidentified Aerial Phenomena in the UK Air Defense Region. It was uh, completed by DI-55. Uh, a professor at uh, Sheffield, Sheffield Hallam University, Dr. David Clark, got it declassified through newly introduced freedom of information laws. And what it says in that report, uh, the uh, conclusion of the report is that uh, UAP, with the traditional features of uh, eyewitness reports, uh, accelerating rapidly, taking off landing, uh, balls of light of various colors. Um, it says those objects, it's their languages indisputably exist. And it says then are almost certainly a kind of ball lightning atmospheric plasma phenomenon. And, uh, and that's a, a, you know, MOD report. It goes into detail about how uh, the top technology managers have already been briefed about this and, uh, you know, all this other stuff that's very deeply conspiratorial they talk about how they think the russians are ahead of them on research into this thing and they should keep it secret for that reason and then uh, the guardian and bbc news and wired did a uh, very extensive reporting on it and uh, it's all 100 percent above board uh, it's a valid document it's represents the sincerely held internal views of the uh you know people who completed it uh you know it, it's pretty remarkable to for it to say those things but you know you so you can see that there's sort of like 
it gets complicated, right? Because it's like, well, I, I guess that's a cover up, but you could say that's for valid national security reasons, and it doesn't ha seem to have anything to do with aliens. Yeah, and, and, and just swinging back to this idea of philosophy, and I suppose this, uh, the skeptical mindset or skeptical philosophy, it, it becomes very clear to me who's thinking skeptically and who isn't almost immediately when when talking to people who has that in their their wheelhouse. And I was just wondering, what sort of things can you point to or you know, uh, give, you know, give people advice into how to think more critically. Where do you start when you've got a piece of information and we don't have all the answers? What are the first principles? What are the first things you should be looking at or looking for or, or telling yourself in response to the information you have? The foundational difference is in uh, verifiability. It's Something that Karl Popper, a philosopher of science, a very famous one, talked about a lot is observation versus interpretation. And he talks about how both of those things are critical. And interpretation is equally, if not more so, critical to the actual original observations. So with the subject of like UFOs, when I started looking at the subject, I began with the top level discussion that I knew was going to happen with fellow skeptics. I began with peer reviewed papers, science papers, and I was looking through research databases like researchgate.net, typing in UAP and looking at the studies that came up, looking at their um, citations, going to those studies, seeing what the scientists are actually saying, because it just made sense. Like, it's like uh, President Obama sort of said, uh, he was saying, like, there are things that people still don't know exactly what they are and people are studying them. And uh, I was like, well, if there are actually things happening in the atmosphere, then people probably are studying them. And, you know, that's where you should start. You should start with the experts, with the peer reviewed, verified, uh, or at least verifiable information. And then you uh, sort of uh, have to take it from there. And it's very hard to teach uh, the um, approach where you are prioritizing verifiability. It's, uh, it's been well studied, actually. And the best approach is, is that somebody who believed something that is unsupported uh, and then has adapted their views over time uh, to uh, more consistent with uh, predictability, uh, verifiability, that type of person is the best suited to then go into the community and explain uh, how to change that over time so that you can sort of have it be compatible to have the more extraordinary beliefs while still adhering to the principles of the scientific method, which are based on predict, uh, producing uh, predictions that are reliable. And everybody fundamentally wants their predictions to be reliable. And so you have to make that connection and it can be very challenging. Yeah, it's a good answer. And I suppose in a way, I think, I don't know if it's a product of our evolution or the way our brain works, but it feels like we're really reluctant just to say, I don't know. And I think that's a very reasonable answer to give a lot of the time when you when you can't be sure and the you know other people are making huge claims. Yeah, I think that we are programmed to seek uh, a clarity. It seems uh, quite evident to me based uh, not only on my personal interactions with people in these communities, but also just in the, uh, the literature. Something very interesting that has come up again and again is the way that information is transferred in uh, these communities. Like uh, in folk uh, 
history often. It's elders within the community. There's a consensus form and the information is transferred that way. And the study, when you study the human mind, you see that humans don't prioritize uh, predictability, uh, the verifiability. Adaptively, our minds have been shaped to prioritize making sure we are not ostracized from our in-group because we adapted over hundreds of thousands of years to small groups and that would be the biggest threat to death. So going evidence first with these uh, types of arguments sometimes isn't actually the best way to do it if you want to convince the person that you're talking to. And then there, you, you can change your um, method if you're you, talking to a person like in a debate format, but you have a huge audience and you want sort of to have the sort of people on the fence uh, listen, you can sort of be more on the uh, evidence side, but it depends on who you're talking to, what the best method will be. For sure. Somebody just brought something up in the chat actually that I've seen before and I've not really investigated too much, but Imogen's mentioned that the CIA created the term conspiracy theory to rubbish people who think critically. And I, yeah, it seems the implication there is the CIA created this term to discredit anyone who may have been onto what they were up to. I don't know if this is something <laughs> something you're aware of. I've uh, I've heard that before. I, I within reference to the I think the JFK thing. Um, now, if I recall correctly, it was within the context of being quite concerned about the Soviet Union using um, the conspiracy theories, uh, whatever you want to call them, to destabilize the United States. So, when there are these sort of cover-up type things, typically there are. You know, there's an argument there. There's a valid national security reason. You don't want to have your nation be destabilized by uh, external uh, powers who you're in a cold war with. And uh, similar things have happened in the UFO uh, subject. The CIA actually produced a, a report called the Robertson Panel Report, uh, January 1953, that was very foundational. They only released it, uh, I think it was like 40, 50 years later. And uh, they go through all of their justifications for why they have behaved the way they have uh, on this subject. And it's it's all just quite reasonable stuff. It's uh, concerns about the Soviet Union, um, the psychological effects on the populations that when there was a major UFO event over Washington DC in July, 1952, the information uh, channels were actually clogged by the number of people calling in about the observations and the military channels were actually clogged. So that was a huge risk. They talked about how they were afraid that the Soviets might do a strike while a UFO uh, event was occurring and it could mess with them. So, so you see that when there are these descriptions of the cover-ups within their own internal documents, these are reports that they produced inside the agencies to guide their own leadership. It's not public-facing reports where they would have different uh, reasons to say things that might not actually be directly one-to-one -one true. You see that there are valid national security reasons often, even if we decades later might disagree with the uh, ultimate uh, ends uh, in mind. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems on the information we have and the videos we have and the eyewitness testimonies, it is very easy for a skeptic to outright dismiss these claims. But I suppose the question would be, what would be acceptable evidence for you? What parameters would need to be met for you to say, yep, something something definitely going on here in terms of unidentified flying objects? This is uh, something that I ran into uh, in the uh, when I was first getting into this, looking at it. What I found was these series of physics papers uh, in published uh, published and peer-reviewed uh, natural science journals 
describing uh, light phenomena in the Earth's atmosphere that when you take a J. Dr. J. Allen Hynek's book, he was the uh, lead U.S. Air Force investigator for Project Blue Book, which is their UFO investigation uh, body. He was actually chairman and an astronomer of the uh, Northwestern University's astronomy department. He provided the uh, observable descriptions there, like uh, of original UFO people that he interviewed, and they aren't spaceships, they aren't metallic craft. Uh, he's describing luminous objects, uniform lights, no point source lights, and then uh, he describes them moving erratically and things like that. So he's describing these luminous phenomena that do not have distinct point source lights. And then he says, like, uh, you know, rarely, if ever, is the object to which the light is attached ever described. And then he says, this may be an assumption. The UFO may be nothing more than the light. And then in the modern physics papers have been published just in the last 15 years. They're, they're describing observationally identical phenomena. How it was proven that ball lightning exists in 2014, the optical and spectral characteristics of ball lightning was published in physical review letters. They, uh, a research team had a remote sensor system installed in China evaluating lightning strikes. They happened to catch a, a, a ball lightning uh, phenomenon forming. And uh, because it is an unresolved light source, it would be completely worthless. It would never prove anything. However, they had a sensor system rigged up that provided high resolution spectral uh, characteristics uh, that they could identify and then they could evaluate. So they could see what the actual composition of the object emitting the light was. And that's how they got it published. That's how they verified ball lightning. So that's the kind of thing we need. You need a high resolution spectral analysis if you're looking at a light source. And then you can see what is actually producing that light. And that's what worked for ball lightning. It's a luminous phenomenon in the atmosphere that moves erratically and all this stuff that we're describing. I mean, the argument within the government papers is that it's one-to-one -one, they think that's what's happening um so so that's how the scientists prove that and i would say that if ufos are a distinct phenomenon that's how they also should be proved because that's the standard that's been set by the scientific community fair enough so i suppose as well ufos are undeniably linked to the the idea of extraterrestrials and for me personally i would love to get evidence of alien life before i before i shuffle off myself and I, I'd, I'd settle for anything as basic as a fossilized microbe on another yes. planet, for instance, it doesn't have to be little green men. But it seems to me, though, if like if we accept the universe may be infinite, and um, you know the conditions for which life can arise um, aren't all that rare, um, it, it seems really strange that given the billions of years that have passed, no one's popped around for a cup of tea. And uh, I was just wondering, what are your general thoughts on alien life out there and the probability and what could possibly explain the fact that uh, an advanced alien race hasn't come to Earth? Or there's no remembrance of any sort of alien race existing here before we did? I'm really happy you asked that because I think about that all the time. And uh, I often sort of feel uh, shut down by fellow skeptics when I bring it up. My personal opinion of the, you know, the Fermi power paradox, which is like, why aren't they here? At exactly what you're saying, billions of years, nothing about our solar system should be specifically unique. When we look out, we don't see anything specifically unique. To me, statistically, just within the Milky Way galaxy, I'm not talking about like intergalactic travel, just within the galaxy, we've got hundreds of thousands of stars and uh, billions of years. I, statistically, there should have been countless alien species visiting us. I don't see strong evidence for that. I don't see compelling evidence for that. So it's like, why, why? One of my co-hosts on the Invisible Night School is actually a professor, evolutionary biologist at um, UCLA. 
And he has uh, talked to me on the show about this because I say that. And then he uh, responds with his opinion. He says um, he believes, based on his understanding of uh, evolution, that there may have been a single instance where the, uh, and I don't know the details because I'm not a biologist, but the point is, is that there's RNA within the mitochondria and then DNA. And there is some kind of point where the independent organisms fuse together. And he believes that that one-off, that may have been a one-off thing, and it may be so extraordinarily rare that at that stage, like tiny, tiny life forms, that that is where life stops typically, and we are just in an extraordinarily unusual situation here on Earth, and that's what explains the absence of uh, apparent contact. So I've accepted his explanation for that because i uh, <laughs> not a... <laughs> professor of evolutionary biology. Um, and, and, you know, I'm still not fully satisfied by it. I still feel like statistically it doesn't fully add up, but I, I accept it for now. <laughs> That's a good answer. And when you look at those sort of magnificent images we get from the Hubble telescope of just how vast uh, everything is, does that make you feel isolated or does it make you feel hopeful that there's something out there? What's your gut reaction when you see these images? Yeah, well, once again, I'll bring up the philosophy background. It um, it's inspiring almost from a. Uh, it's almost like because everything is so vast and everything is so seemingly without inherent meaning that I derive value from creating my own meaning, and I I feel that I, I it encourages me to live in the moment, in the day, and uh, and to like embrace this life that we have. It might be and probably in my view, probably is the only one we have. So. The infinity that we see in time and space is uh, somewhat terrifying, but also, in a sense, it, it centers me on what should matter to me as an individual, which is the relationships and lifestyle I'm living day to day. That's a good answer. And we, we spoke earlier about sort of myth making and legends and I suppose the, the value and importance of storytelling to the human condition. And I certainly feel many of the monotheisms fit into that category. And I was just wondering what's the implication for the world religions, perhaps if one day we did discover alien life? Is that something that would, you know, effectively end monotheism? Or would you think monotheism would just find a way to incorporate that into their their sort of theism? Well, it probably depends on each religion. Uh, Catholicism, for example, from what I understand, they actually had a conference uh, at one point several decades ago where they embraced the idea of extraterrestrial life. And they uh, it was something to the effect of uh, God's uh, just playing a bigger sandbox than we realized. And, uh, you know, the, the Mormon uh, faith, uh, they openly talk about other worlds. Uh, if you are a good practitioner, you receive a world all to yourself uh, in the afterlife. Um, and so it's, and there's no conflict there. I imagine other religions, there might be more explicit conflict, but um, I'm not seeing anything about this that would stop uh, organized religion. If anything, we're going to see uh, a re redo of history where we're going to see uh, people going out into space to try to do conversions. I, <laughs> I think <laughs> that's really funny. Space, <laughs> space Jehovah's Witnesses. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I well, think we'll see. the Scientologists are way ahead of the curve on this already. Yeah. <laughs> I think, yes. Sure. Um, well, Campbell, it's been it's absolutely lovely speaking to you. Maybe you could tell uh, the, the listeners and viewers where they can find out uh, more information about your work and where they can listen and hear more of you. 
Absolutely. Yeah, it's been uh, really fun, Stephen. Yeah, my uh, Twitter is at UAP study. The show, The Invisible Night School, we're on YouTube. It's uh, youtube.com slash at Invisible Night School slash streams. We do all our stuff live. Uh, and then um, I guess that's it for now. Yeah, just the Twitter and the YouTube is what I'll point you to. Cool. What sort of what sort of things do you get up to on Twitter? Do you get down into the the arguments, the fighting, and the general tribalism, or is it just to sort of promote your your podcast? Well, you know, I did get into a lot of the more serious discussions. I, you know, I have interacted with all. I've watched all the interviews that uh, were about UFOs on this channel, and uh, I've interacted with almost all the people that you've had on here to various extents over the years, uh, positive and negative. But I stay positive in the last couple of years, a hundred percent. It's just the way. It's healthier, it's happier communicating. So yeah, I'm, I'm sticking with uh, just sort of promoting the show, set, putting out some info, but being uh, being friendly and trying to engage in good faith discussion. Because I think that's where this is going to like kind of actually move forward. Yeah, that's a great answer. Uh, Campbell, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for speaking to me today. Oh, it's been wonderful. Thanks so much, Stephen. Thank you. Take care. Cheers. Nice chap. Very reasonable. Knows his stuff. So maybe you can put some thoughts in the chat there about uh, where you are on UFOs, explainable by current scientific methods, or is something far more mysterious, magical, supernatural going on? Is it aliens, is what I'm asking you. And if so, what sort of aliens? Are we talking eggs with sort of hand-shaped parasites that implant other aliens into the chest region so explode out at a later date um it's possible little green men shapeshifters lizard people where we at not your alien Stephen from fred not sure what that means Hello, Stuart. Thank you for joining us. How are you? Thank you for having me on. Sorry about the last time there were technical difficulties, but hopefully this will work out well for us. Not a problem. We can uh, hear and see you uh, perfectly. So it might be good just to uh, let our listeners and our viewers uh, know exactly what you do. How would you describe your work? So I am a teacher and historical researcher and historian a lot of my work focuses on the period 1960s, 1970s, but I've covered the King Assassination in two books, um, the most recent being Killing King with my co-author. I've written about uh, the larger framework for the King Assassination works, which has to do with domestic religious terrorism in the United States. And then I've also sort of ventured off into uh, covert action and covert warfare. Uh, in fact, you, you folks have Kennedy assassination. I've been at that a whole lot longer than I've been at the King assassination for. But King assassination is what I actually could make sense of, unlike the Kennedy assassination. So I wrote a book about that one. What interested you to MLK then? What, what is it about his, his life and, and career that made you think this is something I want to delve into more and, and, and discuss and, and write about? So my uh, parents, my father, my grandparents, uh, they, they were civil rights uh, activists, marchers. 
My grandparents and my father were at the March on Washington in 1963. Martin Luther King, I think it probably would be safe to say, was my father's hero. And a, King and a lot of people um, in the civil rights movement, my father basically all but raised me to venerate them. So you know, that angle and, and, and the whole nature of 1960s politics, which was also something that sort of my father interested me in. And so I've been interested in that kind of thing and certainly in King's life mostly for most of my adult life. But his assassination on and off again interest, again, my, my core interest for most of my life in that area would have been John Kennedy's assassination. But my co-author and I, we initially started looking into Bobby Kennedy's assassination. And we started following a particular set of leads in that area. And we ultimately concluded it had nothing to do with the leads, had nothing to do with Bobby's assassination, but they were incredibly intriguing for Martin Luther King's assassination. And we just kept on going on that front. And it led not only to King, as I said before, to a whole entire avenue of research into domestic racial terrorism that I never knew existed and largely is unheard of or unspoken about in most modern contemporary treatments of that issue. Okay, so maybe you can, I mean, maybe you can just steel man the official narrative around the Martin Luther King assassination for us, just so we know where we are, and then we can sort of contrast it with, with your take. So April 4th, 1968, Martin Luther King is killed, 6 p.m., Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, almost immediately there's a manhunt that begins, and materials that were found outside of a rooming house across the street from where Martin Luther King was killed in Memphis uh, initially, they traced to a couple of different people, but ultimately they all traced to one person, James Earl Ray, who had been using multiple aliases. Ray is arrested in the UK, actually trying to get to Rhodesia. And then he is brought back to the United States where he more or less confesses that he was the assassin. And the official version is essentially was he is the assassin. He was the sole assassin. That should sound familiar from your earlier discussions of the Kennedy assassination and that there was no other background or sort of, you know, more conspiratorial nature to it. Now, in fairness, 10 years later, just as they did with the Kennedy assassination, the United States Congress reinvestigates. And there is another uh, sort of official version that doesn't get talked about nearly as much both for Kennedy and for King, because they concluded in both assassinations that there was a likely conspiracy. In the case of King, it was still James Earl Ray, but that James Earl Ray was doing it as a result of a bounty offer from racists. Our take is not a tremendous diversion from that second take by Congress, but we definitely found dimensions to the murder that are different than the original official version and that also are different from the quote-unquote second official version that came about in the late 1970s. So how do you even begin to approach investigating this? This is something that happened a long time ago. I, I assume you, know, you, you don't have access to certain aspects of what happened just from a 
a sort of uh, legal perspective or um, an infrastructure perspective? Where, where do you start? So I can tell you what started us, which was, again, within the Robert Kennedy assassination, we found this report which indicated that uh, an individual who was a terrorist for the Ku Klux Klan and his girlfriend, who also happened to be a terrorist for the Ku Klux Klan, this person accused them of having been involved in Robert Kennedy's assassination. And that largely was a bogus story or narrative. But when we started digging into those two people, we found very compelling reasons to suspect, especially the man in the case, uh, his name is Tommy Terrence, he's actually still alive, may have had something to do with the King assassination. And we sort of dug from there and that sort of widened out the canvas of what we were investigating. And it sort of took three dimensions after that. We were looking at him and specifically the terrorism caused by a group known as the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan of Mississippi in the 1960s. And then we were looking at independent reports about potential bounty offers that might have been available to James Earl Ray that may have connected to that group. And then we were independently also looking at um, uh, separate investigations done by Congress about that group and also the people in the immediate orbit of that group. And even though it came from three different directions, they all aligned at the end. And so we had to do things like file Freedom of Information Act requests we found witnesses, some very, very important witnesses who became sort of keystones for our project. We actually attempted to run fingerprints that were available from the case. And again, I mean, it, it is, there is a, difficulties, for instance, in the King assassination, that second congressional investigation has released hundreds of thousands of files on John Kennedy's murder and zero on Martin Luther King's murder, even though they were investigated at the same time by the same people. Um, but we were able to make do with a lot of sort of shoe leather research and a lot of primary research in what documents are available. Okay, so you're, you're creating this um, picture and you're, you're putting the pieces together and you're looking for where this sort of veers off from the official narrative. What sort of things do you find that stand out and, and you know, cause you to look at this in a different light and say that what we've been told happened isn't exactly what happened? Well, I think the number one thing in this, and, in, and I think it's also just to make a parallel with the Kennedy assassination, there's no good reason why James Earl Ray would do this all by himself. Like there's nothing intrinsically about him that you would say, this guy's going to go out and just kill the leading voice of nonviolent civil rights activism in America. He had no connection to uh, violent racist groups and he really didn't have much of a violent criminal history. He was a criminal, but he loved money. And we're not the first to point this out, but Outside or absent a financial motivation, it's very difficult to imagine how he would get wrapped up in this at all, even as a patsy. Like, why would he get entangled with these people that he claims framed him uh, if it wasn't for a financial reason? 
So that's really the number one thing that just is glaring with the King assassination. And then, so when you start digging into, you know, poking at that angle, you get some very interesting results from. How do we rule out the sort of perhaps mental health aspect? Or there's also the phenomenon of when somebody becomes a, a public figure and so well known, their security concerns or their risk of being killed increases just by virtue of that. I mean, you look at sort of John Lennon, perhaps seems like a very senseless murder. I mean, is there a possibility something similar could have happened with MLK? There's always a possibility, but you know, in a lot of those cases, uh, there's a very clear, even psychodynamic background that suggests that the person wanted to be famous and then that they openly take credit for the crime because of that. That's just the sort of the logical, you know, follow through on that, that somebody became a major public figure and you kill them so that you can, you know, get, you know, the attention or the public attention that you've always craved. None of that exists for Ray. Uh, you know, and again, not to go too much into the commonalities, it's tough to make a similar case also for someone like Oswald. So that also, it just didn't, doesn't add up nearly as well. Okay. So, I mean, what about um, the family who, who said that he, this guy was a sort of committed racist? It seems like we've got a plausible motivation there, yeah, an ideological one, certainly. Well, his family did, never actually said he was a committed racist. He, without question, had um, racial animus of some variety. He, many millions of Americans who grew up in the South and, quite frankly, outside of the South, back then especially, but even to this day, have racial prejudice. But 99% of them don't resort to violence as a result of it. What his brothers did say point blank, and they were very close, was that he would do anything for money, that money was why what, what drove him in virtually any act or defining act of his life. They were very open about that. And we have actually uh, informant reports where his brothers, who, while they were saying that, at the same time would say, oh, he's, he's innocent, he's a patsy, uh, told... Um, FBI informants that they were that Ray did it for a hundred thousand dollar to five hundred thousand dollar bounty offer. That that's what he was seeking that kind of money. So we have that we have his brother saying that point blank to informants, and it turned out the informants were his brother, one of his brother's girlfriends, and his landlord. Uh, and I reached out to the brother, and the brother tried to. Blame it on somebody else. He never even knew that those were the people who were informing on him. So in theory, then, who's paying this this bounty? So there were many bounties, actually, um, and many offers, bounty offers offered over a 10-year period in the 1960s from wealthier white supremacists to the more sort of hands-on Ku Klux Klan-type organizations for people to go and kill Martin Luther King. And that became even more important to do in the late 1960s because for once, the United States government was actually starting to use the force of federal investigations and federal convictions and a whole lot of federal surveillance 
to try and bring these people to heal. So they could not do it with their directly through their normal channels of violence. They were being constantly watched and infiltrated. So they, and we know they, I mean, this isn't me speculating. They absolutely reached out to quote unquote outsiders with money to do other violent acts because they couldn't do it with their own personnel directly. And so, that included, by the way, very importantly, bounty offers circulated through the prison system, which is what Ray escaped from before the, in the year before Martin Luther King is killed. So, I mean, James Earl Ray lived to the, the ripe old age of 70, died in 1998. Is, is there anything he said in the intervening years or when he was apprehended to shed any light on this? What sort of thing? I mean, did he maintain his innocence, for example? So initially, um, outwardly, and he would claim, in fairness to him, that it was to avoid the death penalty, he essentially admitted to being, a, you know, the shooter. That's what led to his conviction. However, when the judge read the list of charges or offenses that he was going to be admitting to, and at the end, the judge essentially added, and you did this all by yourself, Ray got up, and I'm only slightly paraphrasing, and said, Your Honor, I do without question plead guilty to all that other stuff you said, but I do object to that last thing you said, that I did it all myself. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, he's already starting to craft a story where he was completely framed in this narrative, that he met an international man of mystery while he was trying to escape the uh, United States, America, because he had been an escaped convict from a Missouri prison. And this person basically played him like a fiddle. And it was only literally right after King gets killed that he realized that this figure, his name is Raul had gotten him to buy the gun, to visit places where King was visiting, to sign up for groups that were very suspicious, racist, political candidates, George Wallace's campaign, et cetera, and that it was all a giant effort frame job and that uh, Ray would argue, I didn't even know, I was. yes, I was in Memphis, but I didn't even know King was going to be there. It's all this guy, Raul. He completely set me up. I think there's a lot of problems with the Raul story. There might be some truth to it, but that's essentially his, his argument for the rest of his life. Release me from prison. I'm a, I was, I'm a complete patsy. You're looking for this guy, Raul, and his lawyers would go a step further and say, you're really looking for the national security state and Raul is just an agent for them. And but I mean, it, it would be sort of in his interest to imply that he wasn't entirely responsible for this. A hundred percent. I I agree. I mean, one of the things I, and I don't know if it's clear to the audience. I don't think James Earl Ray was innocent at all in this crime. I think you can make a good case that he sh fired the shot that killed King. Uh, either way, he was responding to outside forces who were trying to give him, he felt he was going to get money some way, somehow for trying to kill King. And we don't believe it was intended for him to do it by himself and be a shooter and get money for it. He had no record of being a hitman. Uh, the argument we make in our book, and it's a little bit tricky to go into, so I suggest folks read it, is he literally and figuratively jumped the gun. 
but then he spent the rest of his life doing two things, trying to get out of prison and trying to get out of prison so he could collect the money he never collected. So you have to do it. You have to dance a delicate dance. You have to provide reasons for people to believe that you should be let go out of prison. But at the same time, you can't implicate or hint at the kinds of people you believe may very well be willing to give you money if you can get out because he got caught before he could collect it. I mean, the way you speak of it, it makes it seem or feel like you're saying he was somehow hoodwinked into shooting Martin Luther King. But on the, you know, on the opposite end of it, you're saying he was responding to a monetary offer to do it. So, I mean, if he was paid to do it, how could he not be aware of what he was there to do? So the situation, no, I, I believe he absolutely knew what he was, he was there to do. Sure. So if, if uh, what we discovered was there was a specific bounty being circulated in American prisons, it was a hundred thousand dollar bounty offer and offered two roles. You could either be somebody who followed King and traced his movements and report them back to people who would kill him, or you could be a direct participant in King's murder. The second group of people would get paid a whole lot more money as you might expect than the first group of people. Ray is nothing if not greedy. He's also nobody you would ever recruit to try and shoot somebody. He has no record of being a professional hitman or anything like that. So we believe, and the, I think the evidence clearly shows that Ray was stalking King and reporting his, you know, to record his movements and track his movements. But then he then, when I say literally and figuratively jumped the gun, thought that he could get, he would then shoot him himself, right? He would undermine the actual people who were trying to kill King themselves, do it all himself and collect the full bounty instead of a few thousand dollars for reporting King's movements. So he winds up catching even the conspirators off guard. His problem is, is he does not know how to collect the full money. He doesn't know who to go to and how to get it from them because he wasn't intended to be that person. So when he escapes from Memphis, he's scrambling. And that's sort of what he's doing until he gets caught. And then when he gets caught, he's still trying to figure out how to get a hold of the people who would pay him the money and if you follow Ray's choices of attorneys, they're incredibly suspicious. They make no sense outside of almost like if you understand the way mob attorneys work in the United States. He basically has two groups of attorneys. He only needed one. The second group of attorneys that he has that he did not need at all are flagrant white supremacists. All they do is defend white supremacists and Klan members. Some of them are terrorists themselves. It makes no sense that Ray would recruit those people. In fact, the other attorneys he had were saying, stop doing this. Those racist attorneys you're recruiting make you look like the racist that everybody thinks you were for killing King. Why are you hiring these people? Well, he's hiring those people because he needs a way of getting word or access, or some way back to the people who fronted the bounty, I'm on your side. I'm not going to give you up. But when I get out of here, if I can get out of here, I want my money. 
Does that make sense to you? In a sense, but I suppose where the, where the stretch for me, I suppose, is this idea that he would carry out uh, the murder of one of the most famous people in the USA at that time without knowing where he would go to be rewarded for that in a way that perhaps could provide him with the means of getting away from the heat and the authorities. Uh, it would not make sense to me either if I didn't study the rest of James Earl Ray's criminal career. So over and over again, so James Earl Ray, when he, well, what he was was somebody who would plan out the initial phases of a crime fairly well. But when you get to like three steps in the future, how am I going to get out of here? How am I going to stay away from the cops? How am I going to hide the evidence of my guilt? He's terrible at that stuff. He's almost impulsive in his willingness to do something to get money. And he'll think it through. The initial first steps, but steps three, four, five, and six multiple times. That's how he always got in trouble and got arrested in the past. He would think three steps and not six steps ahead. What sort of things did he get arrested for before the murder of Martin Luther King? He was primarily a thief and a burglar, uh, a forger. So predominantly nonviolent crimes. Again, he's not the person you would recruit to go kill folks. We have the documents where those people were approached with the bounty offers. Ray's the kind of person who in desperation would be more than happy to help you stalk, record the movements of the person you wanna kill. Uh, it's our contention and I will argue, by the way, that this part of the contention, this part of our story, I don't want to say it's the weakest link, but it's the toughest one to establish because you would need Ray more to establish it. But in terms of making sense of the facts, the most likely bet to explain everything that happened that day was that there was supposed to be a more sort of well-planned out plot to shoot Martin Luther King that Ray was a bit player in and that Ray decided to try and become more than a bit player out of greed, and he had not fully planned out. He only had a broad sense of who he had the contact to try and get the money that he felt he was due. And why, I suppose, wouldn't he just uh, spill the juice towards the end of his life in prison? He's, you know, he's, he's not getting out. He's going to die there seems like the idea of collecting this money is would be complete fantasy if that is a true narrative why wouldn't he have just sold everything out i'm not so sure that he didn't think he was going to go out get out all the way to the very end um i mean he was trying all the way up to the late 1990s very famously participating in a a civil suit in relation to his case um so I think he thought he would get out. The other thing to understand is, is that especially if you're in the white supremacist angle, right? So if you're, if the people you're going to sell out are white supremacists, uh, they have a notoriously strong presence in American prisons. You would be putting yourself at enormous risk if you were just spilling the beans on white supremacist groups why you were sitting in prison. 
Well, one of the you know the popular conspiracy theories floated around MLK, JFK as well. Uh, even would be the you know the hands of the CIA are all over this. This is a you know politically motivated uh, by the state. And where where do you sort of fall on these claims? Is that something you you give any sort of time to, or would you dismiss that outright? So partly why I don't in the King assassination is because I do partly in the Kennedy assassination. So if you look at Oswald. You could see him, the, the quote-unquote, what one senator called, what one congressperson called, the fingerprints of intelligence all over him, right? From his defection, the way the files were handled during his defection, his trip to Mexico City, the way the files were handled on his trip to Mexico City, the weird fact that Lee Harvey Oswald just happens to fall into the company of people with CIA contacts all the time as if like almost by happenstance. Now flip that over to James Earl Ray. There is none of that with James Earl Ray. The closest people can get to something that is verifiable, right? If you use, if you buy into Ray's claims about this international man of mystery, Raul, you could hear the hints of, of the CIA, but the Raul story for all sorts of reasons I could get into is pretty clearly at least mostly bogus. So then they say, well, how did he get all of these fake identifications to get out of the country in 1968 to get to the UK? The problem for people who say that is, is James Earl Ray himself said he did it all by himself. And while he is saying that, he's letting his attorneys accuse the CIA of killing King. So if Ray was given help create fake identification, which again is the only evidence at all, maybe, that he was being helped by intelligence services, why would he then lie in a way that incriminates himself? Why wouldn't he not say, no, no, intelligence sources gave me these IDs. Some random guy on the street gave me these sources, right? Instead, he says, no, I made the IDs. I did the research. I found the people who would give me the fake ID." Beyond that, there's literally no connection to him from the intelligence services other than this character, Raul, whose description changes every two years, depending on when you ask James O'Reilly about him. Uh, a lot of people work backwards from motive, but you know that's always a very dangerous game because – a, many people had motives to kill Martin Luther King, just like many people had motives to kill John F. Kennedy. And B, sometimes people who are less powerful and have a less compelling motive still commit the crime. Okay, Stuart. Well, um, but I would argue that the folks in question here did not have a had a very compelling motive. They wanted to create a race war. Okay, well, Stuart, I think so, we just ran out of time, and I made the stupid mistake of opening a can of worms with the CIA. We've just <laughs> go. But maybe you could tell our audience and listeners where they can find your book or more of what you do. Okay, so the book is called Killing King. You can find it on Amazon. And if you want to find me, I'm at Wexler Writing on Twitter, and those are the two best ways of getting to access to my research. Wonderful, Stuart. Thank you very much for joining us. I've, I've really enjoyed speaking to you. Thank you. You have a good one. You too. Thank you. Now we just awkwardly fumble around until the uh, the next guest joins us. Uh, but that's that's a book I'll be adding to my reading list. Uh, very interesting man, 
MLK. Stoic civil disobedience made all the difference. None of this screeching, throwing liquids, burning down buildings, just a dignified protest. Ah, thank you for joining us. Welcome to Outward Unleashed. How are you doing, Carl? I'm doing fine. Thank you for having me. Uh, my pleasure entirely. Uh, maybe you could just tell us uh, what it is you do. What keeps you busy? Uh, many things, but I think uh, what we're here to talk about is um, something that's, uh, I would call almost an obsession of mine, and that's magical anthropology. Uh, I think that some other people have, have coined that also, but I did early on in my life sort of come up with the idea of a specific anthropology that deals with uh, magic how people throughout history and uh, in different cultures have you know resonated with and and the relationship with magic as such and the more you scratch the surface the more you find um that it's incredibly integrated i would argue even on a genetic level and historically it's been with us all along and even in these times which are sort of hyper rational hyper empirical uh we are completely immersed in magical thinking magical behavior ritual thinking etc cetera, etc cetera, regardless which culture we're from fascinating so how are you using the word magic here are we referring to sort of pulling bunnies out of hats or is this a word for the supernatural perhaps yeah I would more more on the supernatural strain but even that you know it's so hard to define because everyone has you know their own terminology and it's often um biased and in uh, sort of influenced by religions um uh, so you have to uh, they're basically, in my mind, two different ways of approaching the definition. And I'm sure you're aware of, of uh, Alistair Crowley, uh, who was such a prime mover in bringing, you know, the supernatural kind of magic into the 20th century or modern times. And, you know, he came up with this definition that magic is the science and art of causing change to occur in conformity with will. And that's a pretty stripped um definition it means that you know if i want to see a film i go to a cinema and i buy a ticket you know those are the rituals to see to see experience this uh, film however uh when we say supernatural uh, we also take into account let's call it the transcendental the personal um supra sensual um experience for instance you and i go to the movies and we see a film that we both like you know um and we say this thing that whoa that was really magical that's a kind of a, a word of of um uh, inflation in a way because what does it mean it usually means that it was like beyond belief it was like so good we can hardly express it meaning there's a kind of a transcendental um aspect to it um and i think that if you look at again different culture different historical times uh there is an inherent need i would argue in human cultures to approach this transcendence through, for instance, trances, uh, psychedelic experiences, uh, dances, of course, use of sex, uh, anything that you know moves you away from the strictly rational way of thinking and acting. Um, so I would say that uh, we have Crowley's on one hand, which is a causal, cause and effect kind of magic. And then, of course, there's the thing 
which is like, what if, what if I do a ritual, just, you know, come up with my own or follow something from history uh, to achieve something which is not rational, which is not causal and just see what happens. And then that thing happens or it doesn't happen. Then you're on your own sort of proto-experimental uh, magical trip. But I think that um, uh, in terms of myself, uh, I am more prone today to, you know, be interested in this sort of what you, you would call the supernatural, the one that has to do with transcendences, that has to do with the beyond belief kind of thing. Because uh, uh, once you know a thing, how to causally manipulate the world, then it, it doesn't really uh, have that sort of uh, magical glamour, does it? It's just, you know, cause and effect. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot, lot to pick up there. So, I, yeah, the, the word magical, I suppose it's indispensable to the human experiences that we've all had, you know, experiences that are hard to put into to words. You know, there's the word spiritual as well, I think, indispensable yes. in some places. But I suppose where my interest in this is as a sort of self-professed skeptic is whether or not any natural laws of actually been in you know violated at any point do you do you come down on a hard rationalist side are you are you open to the idea of natural laws being oh, uh, absolutely violated? right uh, yeah absolutely and i think the um... If we, if this, these are all very, very, you know, simplified uh, observations that I'm doing now for, for the sake of time and, and uh, simplicities, basically. We can see that throughout the so-called, you know, magical history, uh, which is usually under the umbrella of, of religious studies, religious histories, um, many fields of what I usually call proto-experimentation uh, have later on uh, been churned through the empirical uh, grind in a way and become established science. That's really how we look at things. There's always the question, the speculative question of what if, and then if that brings, um, you know, a hypothesis, then it's taken into the empirical uh, mind frame and looked at and so, so does this have uh, empirical validity? Can it be repeated? You know, and it's the same thing. You know, alchemy led to chemistry. Um, astrology led to astronomy uh, uh healing arts led to our kind of allopathic medicine you know so there are many things that have been experimental um uh, mind frames and behaviors within this i would call it almost like a profession within the magical profession where the the old shaman or or even the witch you know uh, all of these people have been experimenting with things because they have been guided by you know their own intuition wanting in a kind of proto-scientific way find out more about these things and i think we have a long way to go still if we look at topics and objects that magicians uh, or esoteric scholars, whatever we want to call them, proto-scientists, have been dealing with throughout the, not only the centuries, but actually millennia. Uh, and today, of course, we have become, uh, during the 20th century, become quite abstracted uh, with with uh, quantum aspects of physics, for instance, uh, meaning that up until then, we looked at with you know, the aid of um, optics, we could look in a microscope or a telescope, what our own senses couldn't fathom and take in, we've been able to to study closely and at a distance and then make our own uh, sort of empirical deductions based on that. 
but now we're delving more and more into let's call them invisible territories you know um, can we watch the splitting of an atom not really but we can you know uh, be our houses can be heated by it or we can destroy many things uh, through atomic bombs so when you delve into the uh, literally occult, you know, occult is Latin meaning hidden. When we delve into the hidden aspects of nature as such, of course, there are natural laws. We already know that. But I think there's a lot more to be found out um, simply because of the fact that we have a tendency to overvalue, uh, let's call it the deductive magic the cogitations of the brain, you know, that's not the same as insight. It's not the same as wisdom. It can lead to that, but it's not immediately the same. So um, I believe that um, uh, there's a lot more to be learned, of course. And I do believe that technology can uh, bring a lot of advantages to delving even deeper into these so far hidden aspects of natural laws. Yeah. So, I mean, that's interesting. I mean, if we're talking about sort of hidden aspects, don't we have an issue there, though, that once they are discovered and empirically tested, they simply just become part of the body of our knowledge of the natural world and just further our understanding of the natural world rather than denoting something supernatural or magical? Right. No, absolutely. It becomes it moved in a way to a different category of, of understanding from the so-called supernatural into the natural because what we call natural is something that we can understand about nature because sure. there are many things we still don't you know uh, and and um, so i think again it's just a matter of terminology and definition and and uh, i'm certainly definitely not an, an um, you know opponent to empirical science absolutely not however i do find it interesting that that uh, when you look uh, scratch the surface of the empirical uh, structure in a way the basis of it the foundation of it is irrational speculation you know because you can't have a thesis or a hypothesis or or um, you know a premise if there's not that beautiful question what if you know, what if we take this crazy idea and mix it with this crazy idea? What happens? You know, that's always the, how things start. And, and the, the science, uh, sort of the history of science is quite interesting because many pioneering scientists that have really come up with new and, and very useful ideas uh, come up with these usually in sort of uh, hypnagogic states of mind or hypnopompic states of mind, dreaming, um, uh, what you call the random aspect you know, it suddenly hit me and they get a good idea. They don't really know where it comes from. And, and there we drift into another kind of uh, interesting uh, dichotomy in a way, uh, whether magic is something that exists within us or traditionally uh, it's been very common to, to, you know, call it spirits, call it angels, demons, whatever. Uh, I, I don't buy that. I believe that we have everything in us and we can also take in, filter information from, um, let's call it greater nature, and use whatever tools we have, both internal and external, uh, to interpret those data in a way. And that goes for, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to suggest, I mean, don't we have a huge problem here in terms of like the natural world is so vast and complex uh, and wonderful and huge. And then as sort of evolved primates, we have this tiny little ape brain to try and yeah. understand it all and we'll always we'll always fall short in that sense 
Yeah, no, absolutely. You're 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 right on the money there, as the Americans say. And I think that falling short, uh, we are doing the best we can, uh, most of us, and and sort of uh, bravely attempting to uh, figure out what the hell is going on. And that's what I meant. Um, earlier when I said that it's something that the magical aspect is something inherent in us and even genetic because if you look at how harsh and how primitive the conditions were when we were evolving from Neanderthals and you know these really sort of more uh, ape-like creatures uh, into Homo sapiens there's still you know uh, hundreds and thousands of, of uh, years of fine-tuning and just basically trying to stay alive so it's no wonder that people you know uh, took shelter in caves and and worshiped the fire and and that kind of atmospheric lifestyle which is basically just a survival thing and and calling upon uh, weather gods, very primitive uh, forces, by calling them names and giving them symbolic uh, um, uh, stature, you know, in order to to uh, communicate with them. Uh, that I think has been so important to us that it traveled on uh, genetically, and that's why we still have it today. You know, uh, it's the fight or flight instinct. There are many instincts that we can give fancy psychological, uh, you know, terminologies. Uh, but in essence, it's about trying to understand a chaotic world around us in order to make really fast decisions so that we can survive. So that I can survive, my family can survive, my little tribe, community, even town, even country, you know, culture. Uh, it's it's on that level, and that's why I think it's um, you can find a lot of uh, things in common when you look at these sort of big questions, but in in different cultures, comparing it and also looking back in history as far as we can, as far as there is a recorded history, and of course we can see that this thing that's usually called you know a pagan attitude, meaning basically uh, when agrarian culture took over from a nomadic culture, uh, then of course you had these um, uh, deities, pantheons of uh, forces stemming from the earth. You know, we give names to the forces that we are in need of to survive. Okay, Carl. Well, I really wanted to ask you about uh, Anton LaVey. I mean, may mm -hmm. firstly, maybe explain who this, this gentleman is and how you yeah. came to know him as well. Right, absolutely. Um, uh, Anton LaVey was uh, an American um, musician, and he, he was a you know, man of many trades, but he was very interested in the occult, but he sort of got a little bit disgruntled with whatever Hocus Pocus was being offered through you know, a commercialized American version uh, of the 1930s, 40s, when he grew up. And, and he sort of favored the uh, a dark side, kind of dark side psychology that was also kind of present in the culture if you compare gangster films and film noir of the late 40s as uh, opposed to uh, wonderful romantic comedies of the same era there was this presence there uh, post world war ii which was of course you know very very dark and he grew up in that and he he merged these things and eventually then in 1966 created uh, the church of satan so he became like the high priest of the church of satan he wrote the satanic bible the satanic rituals and many other books which were in which he sort of codified and defined what his brand of satanism uh, is uh, 
uh, I got to know him in the late 80s uh, towards the end of his life because I was uh, already then a magical anthropologist. I was very interested in this thing called uh, occulture, you know, when the occult means, meets culture and uh, got in touch with him and got along really well and met him on uh, several visits to the US in the late 80s and early 90s. And uh, basically, uh, I had perhaps expected to talk a lot about, you know, the dark arts and magic because I was interested in that. But I was also very interested in movies and he was also very interested in movies. So what we talked about was essentially uh, good old Hollywood movies from the golden era of, of uh, great American filmmaking. Oh, which movies? Well, he he really enjoyed film noir, you know, these sort of uh, stylish, atmospheric gangster films, uh, specifically from the late 40s. And of course, that's exactly when he, he uh, was in his formative years. Uh, but he was really an all, uh, what do you call it, an all devourer for very cool uh, films, usually B films, you know, B movies, kind of trashy films. Uh, he loved films that had some kind of satanic theme. Um, and of course, there were many after he had become so public uh, after um, uh, creating the Church of Satan in the late 60s. Rosemary's Baby by Polanski, for instance, would be one of those. And of course, even the novel that is based on, also called uh, Rosemary's Baby by Ira Levin, you know, Satan was sort of uh, in the air <laughs> at the time, perhaps as a, a reaction to, you know, the wishy washy flower power uh, thing. I don't know why, but. He loved movies. We watched a lot of movies together. Um, and it was usually stuff, American uh, studio films from the 40s and 50s. He loved Marilyn Monroe. He loved Jane Mansfield. These, you know, wacky blondes, lots of comedies also. Just, you know, a good taste in film and music. Excellent. So, I mean, I, th I think there's a lot of misunderstandings around the doctrines or ideology of Satanism. I think there was certainly somewhat of a moral panic in response to it. And when I sort of kind of scratch away at the ideology and the tenets, it feels more like, you know, something that leans towards sort of hedonism, perhaps, rather yes. than anything anything overtly evil i think people see satan worship perhaps as something overtly evil maybe you can just clear yeah. this up for us yeah no absolutely um you know I, a couple of years ago no actually last year it came out i, I uh, wrote a book called anton lavey and the church of satan it was based on a documentary film i made based on my memories you know what the hell happened back then and why was that so influential for me and then you come to to sort of analyze what it is and in that book I, I called him um, uh, Pop Pop Nietzsche for for uh, the American couches, and, and, and in a sense, um, it's true because he did take Nietzsche, you know, a Schopenhauer, and sort of this philosophy of will, and sort of stripped it down and reclothed it with this dramatic uh, aesthetics, uh, dramatic psychology, uh, very very cleverly done, and of course it became very very successful. It was right, you know, at the right time in the right place, I think. Uh, but basically, what it is, it's the same philosophy as Crowley uh, and many many other sort of uh, intelligent magicians. Basically, you have to do what you feel and think is right for you, not to be too influenced by you know any kind of authority. Um, it's not about being a rebel um, for its own sake, you know. Um, but basically 
what gives your life meaning you have no right but to do thy will as crowley wrote you know because once you've found out what gives you your life meaning then if you shy away from that or stray from that path you know you will become very very neurotic and that i think is possibly the greatest danger to this kind of path it's not the uh you know hocus pocus aspects or, or sort of demonic symbols whatever yeah, I mean, a while back, I, I believe I may have read there was some sort of schism within the Church of Satanism. I think it was something to do with the idea of people believing in a sort of literal corporeal Satan yes. versus those who accepted him as, I suppose, a concept. Is that mm -hmm. something you're aware of? Yeah, absolutely. That that happened in the uh, 70s when some people broke away from the Church of Satan and formed a group called the Temple of Set. And they were much more... Um, interested in communicating with uh well let's call it uh let's call it an anthropomorphic kind of beast you know uh some kind of projection or perhaps you know a, a reality i certainly don't buy that i think lavey used the symbol of satan uh because of its literal meaning you know the adversary the opposer the accuser which is a very healthy thing it's in a way like the um our immune systems are also very satanic in that they go against whatever is wrong in the system in the organism um, and for him it was a dramatic symbol that could be used for his own benefit by you know gaining a lot of uh, attention and and members and you know media attention so and that was his uh, strategy whereas i think people who are trying to commune with like an occult force that should take on some kind of form you know tangible form whatever i think it's almost like borderline psychosis you know because you're striving to meet something that you inherently know doesn't exist you know so it's a it's kind of a massive projection and then to add insult to injury in a way you try to command that thing that projection that is basically um, a ghost from your own mind in a way so there was a little schism there uh, i think um, to each his own you know everybody can you know worship whatever demons they like uh but uh, <laughs> the, this the 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 lavean satanism is very very rational it's it's atheist that was uh, gonna be my next question actually yeah 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 and it's in it is you know rationally skeptic yeah i've always thought that i mean I, and it's the funny thing is that there's often this conflation in america with atheism and satanism but for the wrong reasons mm -hmm. uh whereas in reality it's perfectly plausible to accept the philosophy of satanism as a, you know as a symbol this idea of hedonistic yeah. life and reject any sort of monotheism or any deity things like that and would would uh, levey himself self-describe as godless or or atheist uh, yeah, I would say so. However, that, that was actually one of the premises in my research project that, you know, became the film and then uh, eventually the book, um, because I interviewed a lot of people who had met him at about the same time as I was there uh, and um, had this question, you know, uh, did you ever have the impression that LaVey believed in for instance, you know, the power of magic and that kind of thing, or, or some kind of, of religious um, facet or, or or aspect and uh got you know fairly homogeneous uh, replies in that sense uh, that uh, he was definitely you know a skeptic and an atheist 
in the sort of that classical monophist way. He certainly wasn't. He was raised, uh, I think, what it's called, like a, a secular Jew, you know. Uh, so there was no religious um, imposition or, or uh, imposing on, on him. Uh, however, he did believe in uh, what we talked about in magic, and that's also a response. Uh, I, I um, interpreted him as believing in magic, and many others who were there at the same time did that also. Basically, he gave credence, he gave validity to his own empirical research about if you do a ritual for this specific purpose, does it have an effect? What kind of effect? Is it a desired effect or an undesired effect, etc., etc.? Then, of course, being immersed in a lot of lore and objects, you know, talismans from occult history in a way, and and uh, being able to create something that he called the total environment, which is very beneficial to to uh, you know psychic health in a way to control your environment, whether it's just a corner of your room or a room or your entire home, like aesthetically perfect, uh, that gives you a lot of uh, uh, power and and also. Uh, potential for regeneration, you know, what they call recharging your batteries in a much better way than if you share a space with someone who is completely vampirizing it. That's one of his key uh, concepts, the total environment. And he was living in a total environment which was filled with magic, I mean, magical artifacts, uh, magical history, books, of course. Um, and uh, it did bring him uh, not only like inspiration, but it did give him uh, food for thought, uh, research material, etc., uh, etc. Et so I do believe that he believed in magic as this kind of uh, experimental kind of science and psychology. Uh, but I do believe that he was an atheist in the classical uh, monotheistic, uh, I don't know, perspective. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And it, it, it just yeah. strikes me when I hear you use the word magic, and I think it slightly triggers me a little bit. And I suppose it's because <laughs> when I hear you speaking about it, you, you speak very rationally. Um, you, you're obviously someone who's interested in empiricism as well. And yes. I, I just wonder, is the word magic necessary for what you're describing? Would the word, you know, the unknown or mystery yeah. not be more sufficient and just oh, not muddy the water as much? Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's there we have the, the key problem. It's, it's muddy waters. And, it, and I think, unfortunately, there will, that will always be the case. And then, you know, I mentioned the term uh, a while ago, the occulture, which I think is very relevant in the sense that uh, that shows where things usually end up if they're strong enough. You know, if there's something in the occult, whether, you know, from occult history, that's been regarded as hocus pocus and just, you know, baloney. But that is strong enough to move into the mainstream. Then, you know, there you have what I call an occulturation process. It moves from the hidden and into the visible. And when it, things are visible, they're definitely less dramatic, um, less prone to attack, and also much more usable because, uh, you know, uh, occultism is not only about, you know, poetry and, and, and that sort of aesthetic stuff, it's also hands-on proto-science, you know, people come up with ideas that they try, and then some of these things can move into the mainstream and uh, make a change there. And of course, you don't have to call that magic at all. Uh, you don't have to call it occult or culture or acculturation. You can just call it, for instance, um, movements within the history of ideas. Good answer, Carl. And I suppose well, what sort of label or philosophy would you say best describes your, your worldview in general then on, on, on you know, issues such as this? 
Yeah, no, I, I would say, <laughs> I would hope that I'm open-minded. I mean, that's a good thing. Uh, tolerant, uh, you know, in terms of other cultures and people and, and sort of uh, digressing or divergent opinions about these things. I do not like uh, rabid monotheistical points of view. It's like it kills off any kind of uh, uh, human intelligence, basically. And you, you, you're locked in a groove and you cannot move away from it. I think it's pathetic. And I think that's one of the, the main reasons why we're, we're going to hell, basically. You know, we're in dire straits and I think you have to shape up. And if I may, I mean, this is the new book, Source Magic. These words, I think we have a kind of source that sort of, uh, we're all connected to it. Let's call it, you know, some kind of shamanic approach to the thing. But it's also a holistic one, meaning that we are literally part of the same organism. And if a huge chunk of this organism cannot think outside of the box, then we're headed for, for uh, well, let's call it the apocalypse, whatever, Anthropocene apocalypse. Um, and I think we have much uh, better things to do, much more potential to create very interesting things. And one way of getting to that mind frame and that inspiration is to, you know, respect divergent opinions but also be open-minded and and looking at things and validate things that you find within yourself you know um it's not about outer sources and forces it, we have a beautiful psychology beautiful minds uh, and uh, we can communicate in so many amazing ways and it's a shame that we're we're uh, not doing more with it that's a great point carl and i was pretty much nodding along to everything there so I, I appreciate your time i've really enjoyed speaking to you this has flown by uh maybe you can just let our listeners and viewers know where they can find more of your writing and work absolutely as the previous speaker i think the best thing is just to go to the like the major online booksellers for instance the one beginning with an a and on that uh <laughs> in that system i have an author page for instance and that's probably the easiest way to find all my books i also have a website which is carlabrahamson.com it's easy excellent thanks for speaking to me carl i've really enjoyed it thank you very much thanks all the best bye. take care bye, bye. now very very bright individual that came through very strong there hey sean hey now nice and um what's that a 90 minute stint you've had i think you need some rest don't you i am getting in my pajamas and going to sleep <laughs> because i am an old man <laughs> well thanks for that i'm gonna move on now to privatization of everything that sounds fascinating i'll check in on that tomorrow for sure all right. Take care, my friend. See you next time. Cheers, Cheers. Sean. Good night, everyone. Good night. Bye now. Bye. Thanks, Stephen. Right. Final guest of the night. Good we didn't have any snags like we did last week. Is Donald Cohen. I've got his book in front of me on Amazon right now. The privatization of privatization of everything. Now the plunder of public goods transformed America. Now we can fight back. Can't wait to hear how we can fight back let's invite him onto the screen there we go yep we always have varied topics so there's some questions in the question thing i don't think i don't know if steven got to them um uh, oh, hmm. so hello I have, hi i have to figure out how to change my camera i'm not used to this um uh platform 
So any tech help from Ash or anyone? So, oh, okay. can you still hear me? I can hear you fine. Yeah, how about All me? All right, so if you go to settings. Okay, let's see toggle video. Nope, you, I didn't you see do a that. settings button anywhere? I don't. Is You're it, on the screen oh, wait. at least. Oh, wait. Oh, there it is. Yeah, there it is. Change camera. Okay, hold on. Yeah. Okay. I'm really having a hard time. Click on the camera up in the URL bar. We may have to do this separately. Okay. I apologize for this. Hey, take your time. No worries at all. All right. Well, we, you know, we might just have to do it audio because I'm still struggling here um what what kind, what device are you using well i'm using a laptop with a, a purchased camera you know an extra camera because the laptop camera doesn't work i know the camera does work because i tested so it's got it, like a usb webcam is it yeah it's a usb webcam i just have to find a place to oh wait let's try settings here toggle video no that now, Looks like the webcam isn't turned on. So, do you know how to turn it on? Yeah, I mean, I turned it on before. Just change okay. your camera. Click on the camera icon up in the URL bar. Oh, I see it. Okay, sorry. Here we go. Looks like we're coming through. Settings on the laptop. Yeah, settings. See, the minute I said it's been a flawless night, <laughs> I manifested technical difficulties. Just bear with us. Let's see what we can do here. Well, we got further than last week, at least. I think we're going to bring Kevin and Annette in next week. And we're going to bring Ryan Dawson in for a separate pre-record on Andrew Tate and the Matrix. I reached out to him. Oh, thank you, Amanda. Love to me and Jen. Really appreciate that. Jen's in the living room right now watching Netflix. What's it called? Working Wives or something. Working. <laughs> um... The subject is privatization. And I'm going to see if Donald needs to be invited back in. He might have invited himself out. Accepted and connecting, he is. While we're seeing if he can get back in, I'll read you what the book says. A sweeping expose of the ways in which private interests strip public goods of their power and diminish democracy. A strong economics-based argument for restoring the boundaries between public goods and private gains. Best non-fiction list, a far-reaching, comprehensive and necessary book. A lot of reviews on it. How are we doing, Donald? Okay, can you hear me? I can hear you, yes. 
Yeah, well, why don't we go forward? Because I it says it's okay, but it's not working. So hold on. All right, let's, let's proceed on audio only then. Okay, let's just do that. Yeah, and then if I can figure it out, you'll get to see me. All right. Can you just, uh, yeah. just did you yeah. want to tell the viewers a little bit about you? Sure. Um, so I'm, uh, the, I'm the executive director of an organization called In the Public Interest. We're, we're a U.S.-based organization. We're a kind of a think tank, a strategy center, policy center, and we support organizations, we support unions, we support, uh, you know, even elected officials who are trying to fight privatization of public things. Um, and uh, and then we also try to improve public services, you know, because, you know, we're under here in, here in the UK, we, we've been suffering from austerity for quite a while as well. And, you know, uh, schools and roads and bridges, pretty much every public service has been um, you know, it, it, you know, the conservatives are trying to dismantle by cutting taxes and cutting government. So that's kind of what we do when we work around the United States. Um, and so we've done work on prisons and we've done doing a lot of work on public education and infrastructure and a whole bunch of stuff. So we're organizers with with, uh, you know, with research jobs. So how can we distill this racket down into its simplest description? Is it a case of public assets? being sold for a fraction of what they were to bankers? Well, well, that's part of it. I mean, so there's public assets and there's public services. So water systems are being, I guess I'm near a train. Well, so I'm in a union hall in, in the Bay Area. This has been quite, I've not had this happen until my first UK uh, talk. Um, so it, there's different things. There's services that have global corporations like prison, you know, national and global corporations like prison companies, like water companies, like uh, food processing, you know, pretty much everything that we, you know, we use publicly. There are big corporations, you know, often traded on Wall Street that are trying to sell their wares and provide, you know, and be the people that be the organizations that provide those services. But there's also things like roads and bridges and public buildings things like schools and government buildings and other things that they're trying to that they are you know that these are you know targets of investment right to sell them off so that they're under public under private control but they're also you know generate revenue for many many years it's you know it's about the money there's no question about that because i remember when margaret thatcher was privatizing british gas and british electric and she was criticized for selling them at a fraction of the price and the public you know were limited to like 50 pounds 100 pounds but the, i think the investment bankers got ended up with the lion's share of those companies so it seems like a wealth transfer from the you know public to the rich absolutely well it's funny i you know we often face arguments from the folks that want to privatize things that well you know businesses you know the free market and private enterprise are much more efficient than government and so we, you know, we, we ask um, a pretty simple question when that we, we face that argument. One, you know, first off, what's efficiency? It's, you know, doing a little less or spending a little less to get more, right? We're, we all want to be more efficient at things. So we first, we look at what money is being taken out. So I was just look, just looking up before this call, Aramark is a company, I don't know if they're in the UK or not, but they do provide food services to prisons and schools and all sorts of stuff. Their, their top five executives make 24 25 million dollars a year they paid over a hundred million dollars a year 
in dividends to shareholders, I calculated. So you're saying you could be more efficient, meaning you can do it cheaper. So first, you're taking all that money out. You're taking a few hundred million dollars out. And then we ask one question. So what are you going to spend less on? <laughs> and there's not that many things. If you're, if you're in a prison, because we have a lot of private prisons here, you could have the number of corrections officers. You know, you could have fewer numbers, which they do. Um, you could pay them less, which they do. You could provide, you know, lower quality food and supplies, which they do. They could make inmates pay for phone calls, which they do. So it's it's really extraction. It's not efficiency. And that's what's going on across every sector. Yeah, it seems that's the chestnut they use to sell it to the public or the government. Is they're going to come in and do a much better job than the inefficient bureaucratic government? But there was a private prison in Arizona. I think the they come in and, you know, all flash. But years later, the alarm wasn't working on the fence. It had gone off, I think, almost 200 times in one month. And they couldn't be asked fix pain to fix it. And when prisoners did escape and went on a murder spree, when the alarm went off, the guards just thought, oh, it's just going off again, no big deal. And disaster can happen, can't it, in these cases? Well, exactly what I was saying earlier. So if you want to spend less on things, you spend less on maintenance of the alarm, right? You cut corners. Basically, they cut corners. Uh, and cutting corners means cutting service and cutting, you know, and doing, you know, not doing things that you should be doing. Uh, it, 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 I think this is real simple math. If they're going to make money for something, they're going to have to do less of something and they're going to have to extract more of something. And that's it, it's a standard practice. The other thing, just interesting, because you mentioned Arizona prisons, um, we found a number of years ago, we, we use uh, open records requests we do here in the U.S. And we, we've got the contracts between the states and the um, and the companies and com uh, prisons all over the country had bed guarantees in them, well, meaning keep the beds. The contract said keep the beds filled or pay anyway. Arizona's contracts were 100 percent. Keep the beds filled or pay anyway. So. That has a, a couple of real impacts. I mean, one of which is it's in their interest to keep the beds filled because they might, you know, lose the next contract. Um, but it also means we're going to pay them when you could be if if populations go down, which in Arizona they are going down because of drug changes in drug laws. We have to keep giving them money rather than spending more money on mental health services or job training or what have you. We, you know, we are held hostage to their interest, you know, by virtue of these contracts. So. If the purpose of prison is to produce productive members of society and Corrections Corporation of America were boasting in their annual report to their shareholders, our profit growth is guaranteed because they keep coming back. How can they reconcile that? They can't. Well, it's interesting. If you look at, you know, the, the private um, corporations traded on the stock market have to file annual reports with the Securities Exchange Commission here. And in those annual reports, they had, there's a section called risk factors, things that could materially hurt their bottom line. They're very honest, it's, you know, brutally honest. You know, uh, reduced crime is is a is a risk. Reduced sentencing laws, legalization of marijuana. These are all things that are actually material risks to them. So the way I see it, any place, you know, again, their fiduciary responsibility is to their shareholders. So they can't not be involved in any policy debate or legislative debate or political campaign that might affect their bottom line. 
they've got skin in the game, period. And we, you know, that's the problem. We got to get their skin out of the game. So one of the viewers has asked how many private companies are involved in the USA prison system. I imagine from private prisons to razor wire to phone calls, it's got to be hundreds, isn't it? It's a lot. Well, there are two. To, there are two main private prison companies. Uh, uh, Corrections used to be Corrections Corporation of America, and now they change it into Court Civic and Geo Group. And then there's one or two small that run the prisons. But then every we we mapped it out a few years ago from from arrest to you know to release you know release from the system there are companies lining up for every piece of that transport the phones the commissary the food um when people get out and they're still on probation the ankle bracelets that they wear and the halfway houses literally they're they're monetizing they have figured out how to monetize every step of uh, arrest to incorporate to incarceration to release and there's so there are there are dozens and dozens and dozens it's it's a multi-billion dollar you know industry here i did the reverse charge call from arizona jail um and it was 60 dollars, i think to england for a couple of minutes and i read in prison legal news that it was the prison guards union of california put up some of the money for the three strikes law and when the public tried to get it repealed Prison Guards Union put money up again, but also Broadcom, exclusive provider of telephone services to the California state prison system. They wanted people having three strikes and doing 25 to life, even if it was minor crimes like stealing a pizza. That's right. They, uh, yeah, well, CCPOA is the name of that union. Um, fortunately, they're not as powerful as they used to be. So I, I, one thing I say a lot when I, when I go out and run and talk is that it's really important to understand what businesses do. They only do one thing. They sell stuff. And the more, so in a prison, the more people they can sell to, the better. The more they can charge per unit of sale, the better. You got a captive audience. It's really important. So they're very clear about what they're about. You want to keep people in prison? You'll get people on the phone. And, and you, may, you may know this. They're now... Um, you know, Skype calls or video calls. And there are prisons, I can't remember which states, that are limiting in-person visits uh, so that, because people, people could do Skype or, you know, or video visits. Now, someone's going to make money out of that, but think about also what that does in terms of public safety and recidivism. You know, you need to be connected to your community. All right. That's that kind of a, if you design a system of public safety and incarceration, um, the most important thing, one of the most important things to do is keep people connected to family and community and all that. So put them on a telephone or a screen like this with that, as we've learned today, tonight may or may not work. <laughs> well, um, it, you know, it's it, this is a criminal justice system in service to to capital, you know, raising capital. It's creating institutionalized clients for life. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and we see it in all sectors. We see it in, in education. There's a lot of money to be made in public education here. I was going to um, ask you about that, because when I was growing up in yeah. England, it was free. And now these kids are saddled with so much debt. They're living with their parents until they're in their 30s because they can't get out of debt and can't afford housing. That's exactly right. Yeah, well, I had one come home <laughs> and live with <laughs> us for a few years. Um, it, it's exactly right. I mean, people should all, and we consider higher education a public good that everyone should be able to have access to. Now, people go to apprenticeship programs, there's lots of different ways, but lifelong learning and lifelong learning are basically something that makes life better for the individual, but also the community and the nation. 
So everybody should have it. And we've seen this shift from, you know, basically public payment where we, which means what that means is we all pay. Everybody pays, whether you have a, you know, a son or a daughter in school or not, or whether you're in school or not, we think it's important that everybody have access to it to we've, we're shifting it to becoming a, a market commodity. And once it's a market commodity, it depends, you know, whether you have the money or not. And the, you know, and it's expensive and, you know, I've got kids, just, you know, and you know, I was just with a friend this weekend who may not be able to go to, you know, graduate school for, because he just can't afford the debt. And how did the government sell that to the public? Because it's one thing to say, we're going to make this industry more efficient by bringing a private company in. But it's another thing to say, we're going to saddle our most, you know, educated young people with tens of thousands of debt that they're going to owe to banks for the rest of their lives. How did they sell that? That's a good question. It's been a long time coming. I mean, they they sell it in a few. I mean, first of remember the interests, the, who the, the private interests that are involved. That's the first thing. When you have, because there we have two types of loans, subsidized and unsubsidized. The subsidized loans are, you know, we can have loans from, directly from the government, right, low interest, or you can have it through the banks. We have a lot through the banks. And that's been a battle over the last 20 years between, you know, from, and so first is there's a lot of money to be made in debt. You know, banks sell money, right? And they make their money back through interest. So they have strong interest there. The second way I get into sort of the, the ideal hour value way is I'm not going to school. Why should I pay for that other guy that's going to school? But, and, and that's a, you know, that kind of libertarian uh, oriented value system is kind of deep in, not just by libertarians in the country. And then finally, it's, you know, you cut taxes and you just don't have the money. You cut things, you know, it's a chop, chop, chop. It's a, you know, death by a thousand cuts. And that's what happens. So it's the frog in the, in the, in the water. You know, they've been heating it up and heating it up and heating it up. And now it's a crisis level. So we can spend trillions dropping bombs on the poorest countries of the world, but we can't pay for our kids to be educated. That's right. And, you know, essentially what we, you know, what's the, the big shift is, you know, turning, turning us from citizens or, you know, in, into consumers. Right. And that really, that really ramped up during the Clinton years in many ways, Bill Clinton presidency. And if you own, you know, I have, you know, I, I know people who are true conservatives, they believe in low limited government and all that. And they really believe you should, you know, you should pay for what you use. Uh, and you shouldn't have to pay for what other people use. And so that's a market society, not a, you know, not a democratic society. So the Brits pride themselves on the National Health Service. And it used to be when I was a kid, you could go to the dentist and it was all free and everything. In the last month, I spent about almost £2,000 um, going to the dentist because there's just there's no public dentist available anymore where I live, uh, the area of England that I live in. So I think they're creeping in the American system over here with the healthcare as well, but it, it, it's such a hot uh, button issue that the public... Um, they got to do it very slowly and cautiously. These yeah. predators. That's right, and yeah, you know, I've been I've been following that, and so, you know, part of the, the 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 approach, the game is to, if you continue to cut services and people have to wait a little bit longer in line, or you have to spend a little bit more, then people start to leave. They leave the system, and those that can afford buy private supplemental insurance. I assume you you know you have access to that in the UK, and the more people leave the less they are committed and the less they're in the same boat as the rest of the us, 
which means they're not, we don't have common purpose around keeping a healthy system that everyone can have. We have segregated and stratified, uh, you know, systems of care. And, you know, why would I, why would I fight to, you know, to keep a well-funded system if I'm really already paying for private insurance? So the more, you know, they, they do this in schools here, they do it in healthcare. It's like the more, I call them levers, the more people you can get leaving the system, then their, their, their personal and family interests are no longer tied together with others. So if you're in one of the lowest income areas of America and you get sick and you've got no means, w would you get care, healthcare if you were seriously ill? Well, you can always go to a hospital because hospitals legally are, you know, they have to care for, but they have, and they, you know, and this is a burden on hospitals. They have all sorts of uncompensated care. Um, the, the poorest have Medicaid, which is our, 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 we have Medicare for people over 65 and Medicaid for poor people. Um, under Obama, Obamacare, the uh, ACA, uh, Medicaid was expanded, so more people were eligible. More states are, you know, are, are, are you know, there are more people who get healthcare through Medicaid, but it's not as good. I mean, it's not as robust. Um, but you know, you go to uh, and and people still have to take on copayments and premiums, and, and there's you know, there's a I don't have the numbers, but there's a massive amount of uh, healthcare debt in this country. So there are people still of, you know, millions and millions of people still avoiding care because they can't pay the copayment or they, they can't pay for the extra thing. They certainly can't pay for dental care. That's not part of that's not part of what we have here at all. Um, people have, you know, it's a crime. It's it's a it's it's, an, it's one of our great crimes. There's plenty of things that the United States does wrong, and this is one of the worst. So say a poor person needed an organ transplant in a hurry, what would happen? Oh, um, I think they'd be screwed. I don't think, you know, one gets an organ transplant in a hurry, but, you know, I mean, I guess if you're, you've just had a car accident, you would not be high on the list. You'd go to an emergency room and you'd be pretty low on the list. One of the viewers is asking whether the internet would ever be privatized. Well, it kind of is. <laughs> I mean, face you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, these are privately operated and private. These are private companies. Now we all use them now to communicate with one another, but they can do whatever they want. It, it's privately owned. This is not a private, you know, it's not, a, uh, it's not even a utility. I mean, we have private electricity and um, private telephones, but they're re highly regulated utilities because everyone needs them. The internet is not. Yeah, if you want to post shirt properly on Facebook or Instagram, you're going to have to pay. Otherwise, they're not going to share it. That's right. And there's lots of, you know, we, there are lots of people who don't have access. The, you know, the, the Biden administration did, you know, pass a substantial uh, package of, for infrastructure development in terms of amount of money and lots of places are now getting wired. But they're getting wired by, by private companies in, mo in most cases, but at least they're getting wired. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's absolutely private. We've only got a few minutes left. Could you tell us the solution to this? Well, there's, I, the way I talk about solutions is at a couple of levels. One is there's sort of an ideological level, right, um, or an idea level. Or to, I think it's a better way to say that. We have to realize that there are things, I mean, people don't like government, right? And I'm, I'm not familiar with the UK, but people here really don't like government, even though it's all around us. In the paint in the walls used to have lead and everything. It's all around us public action. 
but people, but but the conservatives in this country have waged a thirty or forty or fifty year battle against the idea of government, the institutions, of government. We have to lift that back up. We have to rebuild commitment to the idea that there are things that we can only accomplish if we do them together. So that's number one. That's not. It's not. You know, markets are not the solution to to public things. The second thing is then we have to reform government. We have to make sure that if we are procuring something, if we, do, we are, if we do need something, a road built or, you know, or something that we contract for, there are several trillion dollars of contracting happening by governments in America. We have to make sure we do that with very high standards, right? So it's standards is kind of the key throughout. If it's done privately, okay, are the jobs good? Is the service quality? Does everyone have access and all of the above? We have to infuse those kind of what we call pro-public standards into every public decision, whether it be a regulation or, or the purchase of a bus or, or what have you. So there's, and then of course you need movements who, um, you know, who make things happen because nothing happens without people in motion. I remember Enron through the lobbyists were writing government energy policy. What were we going to do with the lobbyists? Well, you first, you know, not easy. You have to turn on the lights. That's the first thing you got to do. <laughs> Sunshine is important, um, and you got to and you got to equalize it. You got to make sure that the process for getting laws passed and regulations regulations is below the you know the ice below the below the water the iceberg below the water, which has an enormous effect. You have to give lots of people the opportunity to weigh in on the regulations. I'm going to respond to something Verity Love said. I hate governments and refuse to vote for leaders. Um, I don't know if I read, read the name right, but government is all about the who, right? I know lots of people who in government who are doing really good work. In fact, the Biden administration is higher, you know, in their, at their cabinet level, the administration level. Actually, there are friends of mine are in there, people who are, you know, active and smart folks who are working against monopoly uh, for many years or, or, uh, or environmentalists. Everyone, there are people sort of deep in the administration now that are actually making good things happen. So it's all about the who. Right. We have run out of time. This has been fascinating, Donald. Do you want to just tell the viewers where they can find your book and support you and follow you on socials? Sure. So my our website is in the public the book, The Privatization of Everything You Can Find. Uh, we, we send people in the U.S. to bookshop.org, which is more of a nonprofit version, or Amazon, I suppose. Um, our my Twitter is, I can't even remember, it's Donald R. Cohen 12, I think. Just, you know, look us up on in the public interest and you can find all of that. All right. I appreciate you spending time with us. Thank you very much. Yeah, well, thank you. And I'll figure out this tech thing next time. Oh, <laughs> no back. worries. <laughs> okay. Care, all right. Thank you. Bye. You bet. Bye-bye. Fascinating account there, especially of the private prisons. Absolute parasites. Anyway, thank you, Patreons, for joining us tonight. We've got the McCann, Mark Williams, Thomas going out tomorrow night on YouTube. If you haven't seen it on Patreon, it was up last week. And we will be back with Unleashed tomorrow. I've got more dental surgery in the morning. Another five hundred dollars, four hundred quid, um, because it's privatized. Oh, Ashley's saying May third is Atwood Unleashed one hundred. Woohoo! <laughs> I do believe we got John Potash gave us a tentative nod, and also 
I reckon we're going to have Charlie. I reckon we're going to have Ryan Dawson. And let Ash know who you guys would like to see. Thanks, Ray J. I will say hi to Jen. She's glowing right now, definitely still. And um, yeah, thanks for tuning in. Maybe see some of you in the chat tomorrow. Definitely, Ray J, for sure. Salute. Adios, everyone. Much love and respect. Take care.